that you travel on There's one day here and the next day gone Sometimes you bend, sometimes you stand Sometimes you turn your back to the wind There's a world outside every darkened door Where blues won't haunt you anymore Where the brave are free and lovers soar Come ride with me to the distant shore We won't hesitate to break down the garden gate There's not much time left today Welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes, and I'm here with my great friend. What? What? what wait, what's your name? Tim Elliott. That's right, Tim Elliott. I'm Hello. Sorry, I'm starstruck <laughs> by the other guy there. Just avert your eyes. Just avert your eyes. Okay. Okay. So, what are we doing today, Tim? Uh, well, you want to introduce our uh, our special guest, or do you want to uh, just go I'm right not, into what we're covering? I, I'm not good enough to introduce him. You better bring him in. <laughs> Uh, well, we have us the uh, the co-founder of Two True Freaks, the godfather of all that is holy, uh, Scott Gardner. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was that was much too big a build up, guys. <laughs> well, you know, Scott, there's so much that you're responsible for in in our show. Number one, the name of the show. You came up with that, and it was brilliant. It was like the B sharps for the Simpsons, you know. Uh, so, so <laughs> I, I've always been very, very happy with that. And then just you, you opening the doors and letting it, letting Tim and I come in, uh, to the network here. It's, uh, it's been a, a great, uh, privilege to, to work here with you guys. Absolutely. I appreciate that very much. That, yeah. that, that, that I'm touched. I'm, I'm a little speechless, which <laughs> no, is not right. like me. <laughs> you know, before we go any further, it, it just, it just occurred to me that, uh, I meant to mention this right out of the gate. Um, guess what I'm wearing, which is an odd thing for a podcast. I know, uh, I know that <laughs> many of us, uh, famously, uh, say that we podcast in our underwear. I promise I'm not just in my underwear, but no, seriously, guess what I'm wearing right now. Hmm. Is it burn related or is it related to to a, a trip I made earlier this year? It is related to a trip that you made earlier this year. <laughs> I was guessing something like that. Go ahead and tell the tell the audience. So uh, recently, I got an unexpected uh, package in the mail, and uh, I was like, "Hmm." So I get a lot of stuff in the mail because I'm constantly buying things on uh, eBay and other places, much to my wife's chagrin. But in this particular case, I was not <laughs> expecting anything. So when it came, I'm like, hmm, I, I really have no idea. So, oh, that's weird. I was looking at my phone and, like, wondering why something was – and evidently it was dictating everything I was saying. <laughs> that's really weird. Anyway <laughs> – uh, so I, I opened the package, and lo and behold, it is, and I'm looking at it upside down because I'm actually wearing it here, but it is a beautiful, beautiful shirt of the earth, and standing in front of the earth is a, a silhouetted uh, figure of Mickey Mouse, and at the bottom of it, it just says Houston, Texas. And uh, it came, you know, it's brand spanking new. It came with a sticker on it that says glows in the dark, which is really cool. I'm hoping to test that out later tonight. And it's just a beautiful shirt. And, you know, I'm a huge Disney fan. I'm a huge Mickey fan. And I'm a huge space fan. 
And uh, this just tickled me. I thought this was so cool. And this was a, a very nice, unexpected gift from from Brian. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. So I'm actually uh, wearing it for the occasion. Very cool. Well, <laughs> very cool. That is that is my pleasure. And my wife and son, you know, we're both in on it. Um, you know, earlier, just before the lockdown happened, we went down to the Johnson Space Center in Houston and got to, uh, you know, look at it, it, virtually everything there and take all the tours and such. And it was it was doubly important for me, you know, there because I actually got to see some of my father's work because my father helped design the uh, control panels for the lunar excursion module uh, on Apollo 8 going forward. And uh, it was that his team so that came up with the thumb wheels, uh, thumb wheels adjusters that uh, that they put in back then. Cool. And so, yeah, I got to see that and the, the updated version that they had on the shuttle because they have one of the shuttles uh, up there um, for you to walk through. And, uh, of course, I, I don't know if it's the actual shuttle itself or if it's a, a mock-up to look like it. But uh, it's the shuttle and the the airplane that carries it. Um as they fly, you know, because normally when it when it lands, I guess it lands in California, and they would fly it back to Florida right. with the seven forty seven, and it would land at Carswell right. Naval Air Station here in Fort Worth. And I would, and whenever there was a shuttle landed here, I would always drive around eight twenty on the west side just so I could see that or get a picture or whatever. So that was always cool, and I always loved that uh, that stuff. But we were in the gift shop, and I saw that shirt. And it just made me grin huge, and I go, "This says Scott Gardner all over it." My <laughs> wife's, my wife's like, "You've got to get it for him." So, so yeah. She didn't say, "Ooh." <laughs> oh no, she knows why, all about you. Why are you putting clothes for their men? <laughs> did Did you? See, I think I've asked you this, Brian. Did you see the? Uh, because they've got the original Galileo Seven there at the, uh, uh, the commissary or the snack bar or something. Somebody somebody had had saved it uh-huh. and refurbed it. It repainted it, and now it's sitting there uh, uh, in the the dining hall or the snack where someplace you can you can see it. This is at Johnson because we didn't see that there. Yeah, I'd it seen that. I would have known. Yeah, it's supposedly there at the in Houston because I kept trying to go see it. We were when last year when we went down to uh, Galveston. I wanted to drive up to Houston and see it, but I just couldn't make time. And of course, now I'm you know three thousand miles away, but. Uh, have you ever been to uh, Johnson, Scott? Space Center? I, I've not. Um, I've been to Texas only, you know, uh, for the, the brief stint when I went through the, the, you know, for Air Force training and through the police academy there mm-hmm. at, uh, at Lackland. You know, gosh, this was 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I have been to Canaveral uh, a couple of times now since we've moved to Florida, and I love it over there, over at um, the Kennedy Space yeah, Center. It's nice. And having done that one a couple of times, I would love to go do the you know the Houston one just just to have seen you know both halves of the equation type of thing. But yeah. you, know, you were talking about the space shuttle; they actually have. Um, think which one is it that they have there it's the last one that flew is that endeavor Endeavor. i think is the one that's there um that that's pretty incredible i I would you know highly recommend to your listeners if you ever have an opportunity to actually see a real space shuttle you know up close it's a pretty remarkable thing i mean i'd it was moving to me, and I was never that big a shuttle fan. My my fascination and, and love of the space program basically begins and ends, you know, from uh, 
you know, from Mercury through Apollo. Beyond that, I'm I'm kind of fuzzy with the whole thing. But yeah, actually being confronted with it and seeing it in real life, it was it's pretty spectacular. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, Independence, that was uh, known as Explorer before that, um, was moved from um, uh, the Kennedy Space Center to Johnson in 2012. So that's the okay. one that's, that's there now. Independence. Yeah, I'm going to have to get you and my dad uh, on a call sometime because I think, you know, <laughs> just just all the things he could tell you would probably just blow your mind. But, you know, my dad's one of those that um, he's more about the engineers and the things that they did as opposed to, you know, the, the astronauts. He, he was not necessarily a huge fan of guys like Armstrong and such because and, and he could tell you his stories on that. Why? But uh, right. have to do it soon because he's 85 or he turns 85 this year. He's still in great shape and he's uh, still got about 78 percent of his marbles. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that's better than so some we, of we us. have a lot in common then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think you guys would have a great time on a call just discussing uh, a good bit of that. Um, Anyway, so uh, before we get uh, you know go there, let's uh, take a few moments though and talk a little bit about what's going on with John Byrne right now, and then uh, after we do that, we're going to take a long look back at one of the very first jobs that John Byrne did, uh, Charlton Comics, Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch, and uh, you know, did any of you ever see the cartoon for this? Oh yeah, yeah. I think I was aware I of it. I don't remember watching it, but I was aware of it. I was always equating it something along the lines of Wacky Racers uh, when, when I you know heard about it. And I hadn't read the book, even though I've got a couple issues in plastic over here. But, uh, you know, I, I found some videos and watched them. And it's really kind of funny because the book itself is three stories of Wheeling the Chopper Bunch. And the, the uh, it looks like the way that they broadcast Wheeling the Chopper Bunch is they would play three 10-minute episodes or yeah. Three, three, eight, seven or eight minute episodes uh, over, you know, 20 whatever minutes. And so, you know, it, it, it flowed much like that. Um, the only thing that I think was uh, different was that they had the one voice that on, on the uh, show, it was always a, you know, kind of a raspy uh, choking voice and it would say some funny things. But in the book, uh, it was always mixing up the words instead. Yeah, it was called uh, spin or called spoonerisms. Yeah, spoonerisms. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> right. I watched Speed Buggy, which is similar to this. I, that's what I remember watching more of that. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I thought I've watched a little bit of this on YouTube. I didn't watch a whole episode. I kind of watched the opening, so I got an idea of the, you know, that seventies animation style. It's you know Hanna Barbera. It's not. It's not great, but. Uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned Speed Buggy because that's what I was thinking is that I, up until re-watching just a little bit uh, of Wheelie to, to re-familiarize myself, it, it occurs to me that much of what I thought I remembered about the show is muddled with Speed Buggy. Speed Buggy. Yeah. Yeah. Which I liked. I watched Speed Buggy a lot as a kid. I really liked that one, but a, a lot of what I thought I remembered is, is you know, <laughs> like I say, it's kind of mixed together with that. I have no, absolutely no idea if this is true or, or if it has any influence or not, but 
as I was reading uh, the issue, and I, I read the prior one, you know, the just because what we're covering is issue two, I decided, well, I'll read issues one and two to kind of see, you know, is there any progression or anything like that? And I got a serious Herbie vibe, and I'm kind of wondering, was you know the cartoon maybe somebody's answer to the popularity of the Herbie movies at the time? I think it had to be, um, but you know, it, it, it's so funny. The the Wikipedia information on this is really wrong, and uh, well, I'll go into that here in a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think it had to be um, a response to Herbie, and now the. Uh, what are their names? The the Croft Superstars. They also had a, a super buggy, but that was two or three years later, wasn't it? That was live action, wasn't it? Yeah, that was live action. Yeah, where was, he, uh, he had a magic horn. He would turn into a, uh, a doom buggy, right? Yeah. Is that right? He would transform. Ooh, I, I have only the very <laughs> vaguest memories of that show. That's, that one's testing the old brain muscle right there. Well, I mean, the thing is, it, it was a show I really didn't watch. I, I watched The Lost Saucer, Faro Space Nuts. I watched uh, those too. You know, the, the shows like that. And I didn't even watch Electra Woman and Dyna Girl. Well, I, I watched the videos years later, but that was a different, different reason. But, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'd never really watched the. And it wasn't super, but I, I'm tra- even trying to remember what it was. Yeah, it was I, don't, I can't think, but it was because he had humans in it and he would transform into kind of a sparkly red dune buggy and he had this big whip antenna with a claw on it that he would use to grab things uh wonder bug wonder bug yeah okay yeah, yeah that's that's what it was and again you know the only other thing i watched aside from those was hr puffin stuff and you know that would always get my older brothers laughing because they realized that was all just like a nice little drug infused idea there yeah, somebody oh, was puffing something yeah that's somebody, for sure yeah. well so much yeah. that i said marty croft stuff was not on saturday morning i don't think it's my it was more you would just kind of stumble across it on some uh uhf channel mm-hmm. uh, like on a sunday or maybe after school or something uh it wasn't one of the the mainstay of you know abc nbc or cbs that was pumping out the the, the stuff that we said yeah from. you You'd see it as like you would see the banana splits. Yeah, that's another one. Banana splits would be like on the afternoon. Channel 11 oh, yeah. for me. I'd watch I love, that. Love banana splits. Yeah, what was the other one that had the uh, Universal Monsters in it? Because the, they, oh. they would do cartoons and then they would have little live action pieces with them as well. Was that There was a cartoon called Drack Pack where they were kind of teenage the, versions. Of uh, Dracula, yeah, Wolfman, yeah. and Frankenstein. Yeah. Was it? Was it the Ghoulies? The Ghoulies. The Groovy Ghoulies? No. Uh, I, you know that could be. It's definitely not the Ghoulies. That's a bad movie. <laughs> That's a bad critter's <laughs> ripoff. Uh, you are the first person I yep. think I've ever heard mentioned. Uh, Drack pack. I used to love that, and whenever I w- would mention it to somebody else, they never knew what I was talking about. <laughs> I used to love that show. Well, it's like there's a show that came on and it was, you know, because your prime time was always from like about 8, 8.30 to about 11. That was your prime. 10.30, I think, was the spot, like where it's where Thundar was, you know. Uh, right. But there was a show that would come on after that and it was called Arc 2 and it was live action. Yeah, I remember that. Arc it, 2, yes. Yeah. 
Why that... has there not been a live action Thunder the Barbarian movie? I am I'm I'm just itching for something like that to come out. Nice post apocalyptic world with the sun sword. Does Lucas just have such of a not Lucas at this point, but Disney? Would they just uh, sue the pants off of him? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't. It's possible. I've, I mean, I've that, been of, I've been of the opinion for a long time now that if, if this comic book thing lasts long enough, you know, the the wave of movies that we're writing right now, that eventually stuff like that will start to to get optioned for films. I, I think though that that the coronavirus lockdown. And what's going on right now and probably is going to go on for longer than we can imagine, that it is the the stopper that's going to kill that part of the industry. Right. Well, and we're going to go back yeah. to lower lower budget type stuff. Maybe we'll go back to Westerns or, you know, other 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 things that are not going to have to be a such big budget. So it doesn't have to be released in the theater. Well, it'll, it'll go to the I mean, right now it'll go to. Some streaming service. It'll go to Netflix will buy it, or Hulu will buy it, or Amazon will buy right. it. Right. Um, but there's not. There's no way that a movie with a two hundred million dollar budget is going to be able to make any money uh, on a, a streaming service. No, that's why. That, that's, that's, that's why those. Yeah. yeah, some of those, like the Bond film, they're holding off on that one. The Wonder Woman, they're holding off. Uh, Black Widow. Black Widow. There. I, they, they. I guess there was talk of putting that on Disney Plus, but then they're gonna. Uh, they're gonna, I guess, hold off on that, which is good because that's those are the kind of movies you want to see in a big screen. But, but uh, I think that this right. gap, this gap though, is what's gonna hurt the, the the superhero movies more than anything. You know, once you know the the glow from Endgame is kind of worn off at this point. And well, I, I think Endgame was kind of a to some people it might have been a stopping point because yeah, what is yeah. phase is this phase three we're going into or phase four? Four. Four. What I mean, what do we have to look for other than another Captain Marvel, another Black Panther, the Black Widow film, uh, another Spider-Man film, and that's something to look forward to. Yeah, uh, and that's well, a lot of stuff going to TV. I mean, what else is out? What else? Whatever. Doctor Strange. I hope they do another Doctor Strange film. I know that was in the works. Um, well, we've always said that that X Men. And, you know, the Dark Phoenix saga itself seems more suited to be done on TV, Game of Thrones style. You know, a, a, a big budget uh, multi-season series where they could sit there and do the origin and an initial con you know fight with Magneto. And then ultimately coming to the Dark Phoenix saga itself um, being a great way to, to bookend the series, you know, from the origin to the end. Um but, yeah. you know, it, again, could they do that? Could they still make something that, that looks good enough on a Game of Thrones type Game of Thrones type budget? They could. I, 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 oh, sorry, Scott, go ahead. Yeah. I was just thinking, yeah, these days, I, I think so. I but think so. Look at the budgets for uh, Discovery, Star Trek Discovery. I've, I've heard those are about between 8 and $10 million per episode. So that's a mm -hmm. that's a big budget. I mean, I will as much as I don't like Discovery. Uh, I like season two. I like season two better than season one, but yeah, it's still yeah. And Picard was I thought Picard started good, <laughs> and it kind of fizzled out. But uh, they look good. The effects are movie quality. I mean, it looks fantastic. Um, I'm really yeah. waiting for looking for um, 
the new Stranger Stranger Worlds. Stranger Worlds. Yeah, that's the, that's the Star Trek I want. Not that, yeah, me too. Are you familiar with that one, Scott? Um, I so I'm not sure how or why because uh, I've not been crazy about anything they've done Star Trek since uh, Star Trek got soft rebooted in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's mostly you could blame it on you know being bound in the house because of this whole pandemic thing. But I finally did watch Picard. Oh, I, I know what it was. Is uh, somehow there when I, I think it was when I was flipping through Facebook as you do, you know, just kind of scrolling through, and there was a trailer for Picard. Uh, that played, you know, without the the audio or anything as I was scrolling bar. And I I just happened to see Seven, Seven of Nine, uh, (laughs) who was, she's one of my favorite Star Trek characters. I I became a fan of Voyager because of her character. And just the fact that she was going to be in it and, you know, it was going to take place, you know, so many years later after uh, uh, Nemesis and all that, it, it intrigued me enough that I was like, all right, I'll give it a look. I liked elements of it, but overall, um, well, I'll just say I'm not coming back for season two of Picard. I, I mm. felt like, you know, it was okay. You know, I, I, I'm glad I watched it, but I don't need to watch any further. Uh, just so, but after watching that, I was kind of itching for a little bit more, uh, you know, new track. So I'm like, all right, well, I still don't want to watch the other Abrams movies, but let me, let me give Discovery a try because people have been so torn on that you know yeah. uh, opinions that i really value my friends you know some of them really like it some of them absolutely detest it and there's not a lot of middle ground i haven't heard a lot of people be like yeah it's okay or whatever i've heard most most everybody either loves it or they hate it so i'm like all right I'll let me give it a try so i watched the first season and it intrigued me enough really what it was was it was that cliffhanger ending to season one and i'm like okay, you, you got me enough that I'll keep going forward. So I'm about, I think, three or four episodes into season two. Okay. And uh, and I like, uh, I almost said Picard, Pike. I like Pike yeah. a lot. And I've always been a, a big fan of Captain Pike. I mean, I know we only ever had him for one episode, but I really like Captain Pike and was always intrigued by him. Um, so, yeah, they, they have my curiosity up. It, what's funny, though, is that, you know, I... I, I said that I didn't hear a whole lot of people that were in the middle. I find myself in the middle. I don't really love it, but I don't hate it. Um, I'm just kind of, you know, riding it to see kind of, you know, where's it going to go and what's it going to do. Um, it's it's a strange beast because it both it, it plays both sides. It'll heavily embrace continuity and it will really heavily reference things from established Star Trek continuity. And then in the very next second, uh, it will completely ignore Star Trek. So it's kind of doing its own thing. Um, and typically that sort of thing annoys the heck out of me. But in this instance, uh, I, you know, if they're telling a good story, I'm, I, I'm trying to look past that and just enjoy what I think they're trying to do, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably in the same. I'm with you, Scott. I'm in the middle. I'm not. I don't hate any Star Trek. I'm they're they're all like, you know, from different degrees, and this may be a one where something else is a ten. But uh, I watched the first one, and, and I and it's funny. I'd watch it with my wife, and she liked it, not being a real Trek fan. And then, of course, I would watch it and kind of gripe about it the whole time, to the point where she would get it. She get <laughs> she's just like, just stop doing that. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't help it. I can't help voicing this my opinion. 
<laughs> so when something came up that just grated on me, I would say, oh, I don't like that. And I think it, to me, the, some of the, and I don't want to make this a problem with Star Trek, but it dips too much into the Abrams universe to also then say, no, 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 we're actually in the TOS universe. But right. it's like, well, no, you can't have it both ways because everything looks like Abrams. And mm-hmm. right. the, but they but to your point, they reference TOS, but then again, they'll throw stuff right out the window. So I, I, I keep watching it. I don't I don't particularly like Burnham as a character. And I know that probably makes me sound, you know, misogynistic, but I just don't particularly like the way they've written her. I, I have nothing but the actress. I don't like the way they've written her. I, I, I really like Lorca. I liked him a lot because um, I like Jason yeah, Isaac. I, I like I like the actor. Yeah. Well, I like the Michelle Yeoh we got to see in the first few episodes before they did what they did. Exactly. And and I'm not necessarily a big fan of the, the mirror one. I'm not because I don't like that road to going down to make it kind of dark and gritty. The person I, I really am probably gravitate more to is uh, Doug Jones. I think Doug Jones is doing yeah. what's wonderful makeup and he's doing a great job as that character. There's some real growth so, there. So... But, you know, the thing is that more than anything still, I'm looking forward to Strange New World, which will be yeah. the Enterprise seeking out new life and new civilizations. It's still going to be this, uh, you know, one season, you know, event where yeah. you, you're going to have one main storyline going across rather than being episodic. And, uh, you know, that's something I, I actually miss. Um, I've, I've been, you know, my wife, she was never a Trek fan. She was actually never a geek fan until she, you know, uh, got involved with me. And then I got her into Firefly and other stuff. And she really likes the Abrams movies, the, the Abrams Trek movies. And then, so when this, when these series started I, I coming so on, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when, when these series came on, she started watching them. And it, when Picard was going to get ready to come on, she goes, what do I need to know about Picard? And I, I basically created a roadmap of next gen and you know, said these are the episodes you have to watch. He talks a lot and gives up. <laughs> oh come on! You know, I went through this with Scott before in, in, that's, in that's, email. That's a little unfair I, to Picard. I, 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 I demonstrated in what every movie that Kirk surrendered at one point or another. He what? just found yeah. You, uh, you know, Star Trek one, he surrenders to Vija. Star Trek two, surrenders to Khan. Star Trek three, surrenders to Krug. Star Trek four, surrenders to Earth or Starfleet. Star Trek Five surrenders to Cybok. Star Trek Six surrenders to the Klingons. Do I need? I mean, you know, in each one, but, but of course, he turned death into a fighting chance for life, and that's also what Picard exactly. did. Exactly. Yes. And so, and so the, yeah. the difference is, is that see, I, that I I would argue your definition of surrender, but I'll, I'll give you that. But he he, if he did surrender, it was surrender as a stalling tactic while he either implemented a plan or figured out a plan to implement. Whereas when Picard surrenders, it's, it's over. He's out of <laughs> options. Hmm. Well, I got a question since we fell in this Star Trek hole and since I've got, <laughs> I've got, uh, <laughs> no, I had no problem. I had no problem talking Star Trek. Yeah. And since I've got one of the preeminent Star Trek fans on, uh, on this cast, I've got a question, which has been bugging me for about a couple of years now. You've all seen, uh, enterprise, right? You're familiar with it or have you actually watched it? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because yep. uh, I think, Scott, you're one of the few people that likes it. Uh, why is it that 
and I hear this over and over when the people talk about Enterprise, they say, well, it's not really very good, but the last season's good. You know, so, if, you, if, if you give it a chance, it gets better. Why? But I would say the same of Next Gen. The first two seasons of Next Gen are not stellar. There's some real clunkers in there. And but some no, great ones, too. Yeah, and the, well, I'd say the same of Enterprise. But nobody says, oh, uh... Uh, next gen, it's a great show. You know, the first couple of seasons are not that good, but you know, it gets it gets really good. Nobody gives to me. No, nobody gives Enterprise the same pass. Like, I I fell in love with Enterprise from the get go. I loved it. I had some problems with it, but that's every Star Trek. But I liked it from the very first season. Um, and I just wish they would give it a little more respect that they do. You know, they didn't say the same thing about DS Nine. Oh, the first season or two, but once it gets into that big arc. It really gets really good. Um, I don't think yet that there has ever been a Star Trek show that is great start to finish. They they all have their problems. With the original series, mm-hmm. it's diminishing returns as you continue into the series. First season's great. Second season's solid. Third season has some serious issues. Um, next gen... I would argue, see, I, I think I'm one of the very few first season defenders of Next Gen because one of the big reasons that I did not, I, I kind of got into Next Gen way late in Next Gen's run. Next Gen was almost over before I became a fan. And a lot of that reason was uh, the first season, I watched it for the first season. And kept waiting for another episode that I felt was as good as the premiere um, encounter at Farpoint. And while I liked other episodes, I, I just felt like they were getting away from a lot of the concepts and ideas of, of encounter at Farpoint, which I'm sure, you know, a lot of fans are probably like, well, thank God. Cause you know, <laughs> my, my understanding is a lot of people don't really have a high regard for that episode, but I loved it because it's like a mini Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I'm also a huge fan of. So I liked it in that aspect. So I gave up on it after that first season because I just felt like, okay, well, that must have been a one-off. They're not really going to do that. Um, and then I came in, came back to it later in like the, I don't know, it was like the fourth, fifth, or sixth season. It, it was pretty late in the series. And then re- you know, watched up you know, to get caught up with it. And then I became a big fan. So with Next Gen, I think it's a matter of it gets better as you go. There is a season late in the series. I, I can't remember which season it is. It's fifth or sixth, I think, where it stumbles a bit. Mm-hmm. But then it, it ramps back up again. Um, but overall, I think it, it gets pretty much gets better as you go. Although the third season does seem to be where they kind of hit their, their peak, I think, you know, cause of course you had best of both worlds and all that. Yeah. Booby uh, trap. What's that? Booby, Booby trap. trap. I always like trap. Booby trap. Yeah. That's a good one. But, uh, you know, and, and you, you make a good point, you know, the, the third season, of course, where they really hit the stride, but there was such, I mean, landmark episodes in season two, in season one, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a few episodes that were that were, in, in my mind, very provocative. Where no one has gone before the neutral zone, which was like the the finale for that. I season. love that episode. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. And then when that's you get to ep- season, when you get to season five, and at this point, Deep Space Nine has come on, 
And I think it was at that point, and I know Brandon Braga, I think, was getting involved in much of the, you know, the show running. And I think that that's when Star Trek started falling into it. You know, they, they've got this formula that they put together where you have the, the two different storylines, the, uh, the overall storyline and the personal storyline. And the, the, unless they had some, a really, really good concept, the episode would suffer for that. And then they had to have a show for each, you know, member of the, of the main cast. You know, there had to be a Deanna episode. There had to be a Beverly episode. And I'm sorry, those were typically the ones that were the more boring. Right. Well, it depends on what they did. Yeah, I, I will agree with yeah. you, Scott, that I think tr- Next Gen, I'm not saying Next Gen's bad, does get better. Uh, and and I'm not a I'm not a, a hater of season one or two. I mean, I like to because I happen to like Pulaski. I know people don't like her. Mm-hmm. Uh but the, you have to admit, I mean, that's true of any show. They are kind of finding their way. The, the, the actors haven't found their characters yet. They haven't found quite the rhythm to get into. So there are some, uh, there are some clunkers in season one. But I just wish, uh, being the big fan of Enterprise, that people would kind of give it the same, you know, look at it differently too. There are so many people that seem to dismiss it right away, like, oh, that movie's that that show's terrible. Well. To, to try to answer your your original question, though, as I as I understand the question, I, I think the problem was is that after next gen, um, then it, the the change in the sh- in each individual show was much more drastic. So, like I say, with with the original, it was it. it I, I hesitate to say it got worse over time. I'll just say it was diminishing returns over time. Whereas Next Gen, I think, for the most part, except for that one season, got better as it went to where by the time it went out, it went out on a high note. They they ended mm-hmm. it at the right time because they really went out on a high note. Yeah. Um, Deep Space Nine, at least to my mind, is is the first one that began a trend that has continued. Well, it continued for the three other original series, if you know what I mean, original timeline series. Right. Whereas DS9 sucked for... I forget how many seasons it was until Worf came in. When Worf came in, that all of a sudden that show changed dramatically to where it was watchable, and it pretty much got better over time to where, again, they went out at a fairly high note. Not as high as maybe Next Gen, but it, it, it became more true Star Trek, if you know what I mean. And again, this is just my opinion. Uh, anybody that knows me knows I'm, I don't have much tolerance for DS9 because it... To me, it's not real Star Trek. But isn't that when the showrunner also switched? They went from, I think, Iris Stephen Bear to Michael Piller? Uh, you and could that, be right. No, yeah, Iris Stephen Bear, st- he's the one that started the long storytelling. So I think he really okay. came, he became more, he became, you know, more in charge, I think, season, I think Worf came in season four, right about the time yeah. the Dominion War kicked the Dominion Yeah, I, I could have could had them backwards. But yeah, I, I think that's that's what what we're talking about, is that there was a change in the showrunner and it changed the direction. But and the, uh, the, the two that were the most dramatic, I think, though, honestly, were, were both uh, Voyager and Enterprise. Because Voyager, in my experience suffers from the same thing you're talking about, Tim, whereas people that never got into it, never discovered it or whatever, um, you know, they have a very low opinion of it. Many people were just outright dismissive of it. 
and even people that that did give it a try, I, I think a lot of the problem with uh, Voyager is, is again the problem that Enterprise has is that maybe they just didn't stick around long enough, um, because Voyager doesn't get watchable, and when it when it does when it, when that flip when that switch gets flipped. It not only becomes watchable, it becomes a damn good show, and that's Scorpion, uh, which is, I think it was a season ender, if I remember right. I can't remember yeah. which season it is, um, but it was a two-parter uh, season ender. Where and they that's discover what, fluidic space, and they fight species yeah. Yeah. one, two, three, four, whatever it is. Right, four, yeah. seven, two, yeah. Yeah, and that's For me, where uh, Seven comes on the show, yeah. Because what happened to me there is that first season, um, I started, you know, it's like every episode started and I was like, wait, have I seen this one before? Because it was always they're looking at the screen and there's an anomaly out there. And it just every episode started the same. And I was just like, this is getting boring for me. And I walked away for a bit. And then I, you know, I heard about, you know, the whole thing with the Borg and such. And so I came back and there was one episode where the EMH got implanted into seven of nine. And I was just so freaking amazed at her acting ability in, in that, that, you know, at that point I just made sure to watch every episode to the end. Well, cause I'd walked away for a short while. I, and I kind of watched Voyager. I watched it, but if I missed an episode, I would be like, Oh, I missed it. Be like, okay, I missed it. Uh, I, my, my biggest, and I'm not a hater on Voyager. It's just, lower on my list but my my big problems with it were as much as i think seven of nine was a compelling character they dress her in that skin tight silver jumpsuit Mm -hmm. so that unless you're paying attention to the show and watching it you think well she's just there for eye candy they just took uh, you know this attractive woman put her in a painted on suit to get it's it's funny you say that because i was watching that show first run as it aired on upn and I was there from the pilot, and I watched it religiously, even though I wasn't really enjoying it. And when Scorpion aired first run, and at the end of part two, where she comes out and she was in the cat suit for the first time, you know, the skin tight suit. Yeah. That's where I stopped watching it first run because I had the same reaction. I, I don't know what language or whatever's allowed on your show, so I'll just say, <laughs> yeah, I said, okay. I understand why she's there and she was there for that titillation factor, but it was, mm-hmm. it's more, she, she rose above what I think they brought her in for. And now I really regret that I didn't stick with it. So when I, it was many years later that I actually went back and not only rewatched the initial seasons, but then finished the series. And then I realized, Oh my gosh, what a great show this actually really was. And that was, you know, my story is exactly the same with Voyage, or excuse me, Enterprise, because I watched Enterprise uh, first run, and I was there for the first couple of seasons. I don't think I made it all the way through season two, because if I had, I think I would have kept watching, because the where, where Enterprise works is in the very last episode of season two uh the earth gets attacked and the it was a 9-11 uh analogy where then the enterprise has to go off on a completely new mission just to save the planet essentially 
and the the entire shift uh focus the mood of the show everything changed and it was a it was a move for the better and then the third season is very modern television of the time whereas rather than being episodic where you could drop in and drop out you didn't have to catch every episode with this you had to catch every episode because they built on each other yeah. it was a season long arc that when it ended um was some of the best trek we've ever gotten season three of enterprise is incredible television to me you know incredible <laughs> star trek but you've got to wade through two terrible seasons to get to it. That's the problem. And that's where I think people are extremely dismissive of Enterprise because the first two seasons, again, my opinion, are, are just painful to get through because Trek felt very tired by that point. A lot of recycled plots, a lot of stuff we'd seen before. And I think the thing that drove the fanboys away was that it was playing fast and loose with established Star Trek continuity. And it was really stealing a lot of firsts from the original series. And yeah. I think that just annoyed fans to where they started to tune out and they weren't giving it a chance. But what's really ironic, though, is that uh, one of the best individual episodes of star trek uh, all of star trek in my opinion actually happens in i think it's in the first season of uh, of enterprise which was carbon creek that is a mm -hmm. damn fine episode really good episode mm. but that's really the only gem in those first two seasons until you get to the zindi storyline and then the zindi storyline's awesome season three is must watch trek in my opinion and then the fourth season slips a bit but then right at the end, man, they were so hitting their stride with that show. And they so, so deserved a fifth season and never never got it. And maybe it, that was know? it. If it had ran, you know, they were doing seven seasons. So if it ran five, six, and seven, maybe people would be saying the same thing that they say. Well, the first two seasons are good, but then it gets better through the rest of the season. So maybe it's because they didn't get a chance to stay around long enough. But uh, I agree. They kind of wrote themselves. They, they, they one, they gave themselves a, a, a pretty big speed bump to begin with because making it a prequel, you've got established canon that you really can't monkey with, but also you can't you can't play with a lot of the toys. You can't play with the Klingons really. You can't play with the 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 Romulans. You can't do a lot of the uh, the characters that are people got used to. So, well, where I'll give that show huge props though is that. While they repeatedly fumbled that ball, you know, that continuity ball in the first two seasons to where they essentially lost their core audience, you know, the, the audience that they were courting by that fourth season, they figured that out and they were they course corrected or at least they attempted to because the Vulcans are very out of character in the first two seasons. But they course correct that in that fourth season, there's a whole Vulcan arc where they explain why things were screwy and they put it then on the right continuity path to eventually match up with the Vulcans yeah. as we would see them well, in the original I, I give them, I get a lot of props too for what they did with the Endorians. And, uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that was uh, with Shran. That's his well, name. Yeah. I, I want to yeah, change they, subjects they, here for just a second, just a little bit. That's okay. And, and ask, ask Scott. <laughs> Have you read any of the Star Trek New Visions photo novels that, that Byrne put out? 
<laughs> it's it's funny you ask me that because uh, my best friend Chris Honeywell, the the other original two true freak, mm-hmm. um, he uh, he has re- tried repeatedly to turn me on to those because he raves about them. Um, I have picked a couple of of those up out of the cheap bins, and they're in my collection, uh, still unread. So <laughs> I've not read them, but I have a couple of them. Uh, they're they're on the eventually, you know, one of these days I'll get around to it list. <laughs> just just play your Alexander Courage soundtrack, you know, in the background and read those, and I, th- I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by what you get. I, I expect I'll really like them because the burn uh, trek that I have read invariably I really like it because that dude knows his trek and yes. he has my respect when it comes to Star Trek because his love of it shows but also his knowledge of it shows he he really knows his trek and I you know I respect that. Now, had you had a chance to read any of the Elswen, the new stuff that we, uh, you know, I'd, I'd shown you the, the CBRs of that a couple weeks back. Oh, the the X Men. Yeah, the new stuff. I, I, I have thumbed through it. I, I have not read any of it. I'll be honest. But I saw uh, very recently on Facebook, um, uh, I, I think I presume it was a finished page because it was colored and everything, um, where Gladiator was in uh-huh. the store and i'm like okay you've got my interest so yeah it's it's definitely on my on my list to read yeah but. now the the thing is what's going on of course is you know he's um he started basically at the dark phoenix saga at the end of that but instead of gene you know killing herself uh the shire did the lobotomy and he's oh, so carrying picking the story. up from the phoenix untold yeah. story that's, okay that's, yeah. that's right and and so they're picking it up from there so gene basically has the the mind of a five-year-old girl and uh you know the x-men story is just picking up from there the way burn himself would have done it or how he would do it now because you know like it, there were so many things that he didn't like he didn't like logan becoming super ninja guy he didn't like kitty being turned into a, a super genius and so, you know, the, you, you see those those characters remaining the way that they are rather than, you know, morphing into something else. And, yeah, again, he's continuing that story there, but he's brought it all modern day. So it's like, you know, uh, you know, the issue ended, of course, in 1980. The story ended in 1980. But uh, as it picks up, it's picking up like it's today, but not a day has passed. Right. It's modern, yeah. but not modern. It's, or it's contemporary, yeah. but not con- it's It's kind of confusing. Yeah. So and is this is this actually sanctioned by Marvel? I mean, are, the, are they putting this out or putting their their well, name in it or anything like that? No. Um, when he first started doing it, he he did a thread called Pencil Practice on his website, and uh, he was doing a bunch of like basically one issue. He was just kind of throwing out a whole bunch of pages, and CB Sabolsky, you know, who's editor in chief at Marvel, comes to him at uh, the Boston Con and says, "Hey, let's talk about this." And, you know, they were going to talk about publishing it. But as time went on and Sabolsky really kind of gave him the idea that other things were more important to him than putting this out uh, in the X-Men universe, the Byrne just decided he wasn't going to publish it through Marvel. And in the same uh, freedom that the artists get on doing commissions, uh, if they do fan fiction, uh, there's really no copyright infringement as far as, you know, the Marvel and DC are concerned. 
I mean, they could make games about it, but they won't. Yeah, he's not making right. money on it, so right. I guess so they're he, going to I mean, ultimately, well, he'll make money time, selling the pages. The last time they went after, you know, vigorously pursued a, a creator, it bit them in the ass badly uh, PR-wise. So I can't see them doing that again anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Who was that? Who did they go after? Just It was... Ghostwriter guy. Uh, oh, okay. Fried- Friedrich? Michael Friedrich? I could be completely wrong. I, be- on the name. No, I believe that's the name, uh, but yeah. yeah, I know what you're talking about there. Yeah. And, but so he's been, you know, uh, he's on issue 12 right now, and it's, it's, uh, the, the Phoenix storyline has resurfaced and has gone into an interesting direction. And, uh, it, it, it's all coming to a head right now. We're in the last pages of it. Um, today uh you know tomorrow and friday or, or tomorrow i'm not sure which is the last page but uh and then there'll be a cliffhanger until the first uh regular monday of the next month so it'd be like the 6th of july before the next issue starts and so he's just putting out a page a day on weekdays and uh there have been nice people on in the facebook groups who take each issue as they're completed and you know put them in a one cbr or a pdf yeah a lot of people so, like making them and coloring them and kind of yeah but he's only out. penciling them he's doing very right. very tight pencils um and and lettering them but uh you know he's not going to ink them you know he'll let anybody that wants to ink them ink them and people do that and they put it on his site or Facebook or wherever, and Jeff Tolbred is the guy that's been coloring them the most. Well, some of his coloring uh, the last couple of days really, I don't know, I, I, I wasn't uh, pleased with his work on Gladiator. Let me let me ask you a question on, on the subject of, of the inks. Um, how do you feel on Burn inking Burn? Essentially, Burn inking himself. How do you feel about that? Well, we've gone back and Tim and I have gone back and forth on that one um, over the years. And and one of the uh, for me, like when he was inking himself on Fantastic Four, I had no issue with that. Um, but when he started Alpha Flight, uh, and someone said he was using a felt tip pen to ink himself, um, and you know I, I don't know everything around behind that, but I know that his uh, his line on his inking got really really thick. And uh, I wasn't liking that. It, it, I, I think that it turned into an inking shorthand where he wouldn't pencil as heavily. He'd pencil very loosely when he was inking himself on Alpha Flight. And then he would come in you know, behind and do all the inks um, to finish everything out. And so the detail got muddled and all that. Yeah, I've always said that sometimes when he – sometimes, not always, but sometimes when he inks himself, it can look a little muddy. Uh, yeah. Of course, but it, it's never really bothered me beyond that, though. It's not. It doesn't ruin ruin the art. I mean, I, I like obviously I like um, uh, Austin on him. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. you know probably the best example. But I also like I like Tom uh, Palmer on him, and I don't think Brian doesn't. So it just it just I, depends. I, I, on don't, I don't dislike. Well, I'm, a, Tom. I'm a Tom Palmer. Yeah, I'm a Tom Palmer. Mark. Um, it's funny. I wouldn't have thought of him immediately for burn but you're right but i i'm a tom palmer mark i love the guy's art you know even on his own but uh to me it's funny you know i always hear austin mentioned as the the quintessential burn inker and he probably is but the one that always immediately comes to my mind actually is carl uh kessel because i love his inks 
like uh, Superman number eight, I, I look mm-hmm. at and go, artistically, that's a perfect comic book. It's just beautiful. And that's the one with the Legion, right? That is, yes, it's it's the one where it's the cover on it is the homage cover to FF249. And I want to say, yeah. Yeah, two, we were talking about that last week. Yeah, um, on our favorite but Yeah, yeah, and, 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 you know, I, I go back and forth on, on, on him uh, as an inker, just like I do with Jerry Ordway, because we were talking about that last week as well, because I, I liked when Jerry Ordway was inking him on Fantastic Four, yeah, and um, there was the 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 JLA Tenth Circle stories, which are beautiful, but it's at the same time a slog to read because Claremont is is writing them. Um, <laughs> but the, the one of the covers that I picked was the one where Superman uh, it looks like Superman stabbed Wonder Woman with the sword, and that was an Ordway inking on Burn, and it was gorgeous in my mind. But I don't know that Tim liked that one as much as uh, as I did. But no, but I, that, if, the one, well, I just thought it didn't look like burn. Um, that wasn't. Uh, Kurt thought it was a little too adult uh, to have. Yeah, a woman yeah. Lay, laying prone with a a spear. I mean, a, a sword coming through her chest. But uh, it, it just depends. I mean, sometimes he does like his work on, um, which I think he inked himself on Blood of the Demon. Or am I misremembering? No, that was that was Necros okay. and. Um, Dan Green and uh, was it Will Pfeiffer? I forget. I forget uh, or he was See, that, that inking is a little heavier, but I think that fits the mm-hmm. subject matter. Yeah. Uh, I always thought some of his Alpha Flight stuff looked a little heavy. Uh, I never had any problem yeah. with his uh, with the stuff he did for himself on uh, FF. But um, since, we're, uh, since we've been talking an hour about Star Trek <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about inking your own stuff, let's... Um, you want to get us into uh, what we're going to cover, yeah. Brian? Yeah, this is, um, you know, of course, a very, very early job that he did um, was uh, he started, and it turned out he started out on issue two of Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch by Charlton Comics. And um, there's a lot of information that's, well, not a lot, but there's information that's out on, on like Wikipedia and other areas and it looks to be really really mixed up because like Mike's Amazing World said he started on issue two and did issue three Wikipedia says he started on issue one did issue two and then you know got out because of um, you know, I think he just constantly got disenfranchised when he was working on licensed materials and uh, even though Hanna-Barbera at the time was paying him fifty dollars per page you know, he just uh, felt wrong taking that, and um, he he just did not like working on the series because of that. Uh, that being said, uh, the funny thing was is is uh, l- looking through Burn Robotics, I was able to, to find a few little bits of information where he talked about this, and um, he had never ever seen an episode of Wheelie. Uh, when he actually got to do it, he got you know all the information, the figures, and everything to work with, but uh, he just you know had you know had not seen it, and still was able to put something that looks roughly what you see on the on the TV screen. I was able to find some on Daily Motion, uh, three episodes. I think that's the, the one you were talking about, Scott, where he's doing the the kung fu bit. Mm. Scott, uh, is that the one that you watched? No, I, I just 
uh, I re-familiarized myself with the uh, with the opener to the show. Essentially, ah, I don't think that's what I, I, yeah, just, I just watched the opener because that kind of gives you the style and look yeah, and that's how you can comments. find when you're on um when, yeah when you're on YouTube. I had, I, I did a, another search and found it in DailyMotion.com, and they've got a half hour's worth, like a full you know full episodes worth, which is three shorts, and which is funny because the comic does three shorts as well. And right. uh, of course, it's the story of Wheelie and his girlfriend Rhoda Ree. Uh, there are cars, and Wheelie in the form of a Volkswagen Beetle, and the chopper bunch of motorcycles that uh, were there was no love lost between the cars and the bikes. And I'm paraphrasing Burn here from his site. And he says, like cars, several decades later, there were no human characters, though all the human aspects in architecture and the likes were still fully manifest. And uh, so he wrote it based on model sheets and the scripts that he was sent to draw from. But uh, he never saw a single episode of the show. Now, the, the one thing is they did, because he didn't see the show, he didn't know about those super stylized backgrounds. And if he'd done that, he would have drawn those in. Uh, you know, that being said, what he drew is so uh, akin to the show. And what followed, before, well, what went before and after it was uh, Joe Staten. Uh, did it uh, looks like he did the art on issue one and yeah. then on, you know he started again on issue four uh, and he did the cover of issue one as well is that you know the, the 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 style that they both did melded so well that it was very hard for people to tell the difference between the two and only by yeah. looking on the inside of the first page of the issue that we're talking about here which is issue two you can see burns uh, little signature uh, there on the page in the bottom right-hand corner of the first panel. Now, that first issue, um, it, it's funny because I'm sure out there somewhere there's probably some fan site or something that gives all kinds of love to these old Charlton books. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, I find that most comic database sites, like, say, Mike's Amazing World or something like that, kind of give short shrift to the Charlton stuff as far as credits go. Um, but looking at that first issue, it's funny because I'm a huge Joe Staten fan, but I, I don't think I could have picked up that this was Joe Staten just looking at it if I didn't know or suspect that it was already. Mm -hmm. Whereas starting with issue two, I can tell it's burn right out of the gate, even even if his signature hadn't been on the art. But anyway, in that first issue, um, just to throw it out there for any collectors or what, um, I don't believe Byrne did any of the wheelie stories, but much like the issue we're looking at, issue two has a text piece story by um, Mike, Mike Zach. There's a text piece story by Byrne in the first issue. Well, it, it was written by Michael Pulowski, wasn't it? And he yes. did, he just did the art piece. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yep. and the, the Zach story, if he didn't write the but Zach, did, I guess, did the artwork. It is right. weird, <laughs> funky. Those two kids he's drawn, this magic. Yeah, they, they, that they, is. That's yeah. not the Mike Zach I know. That is some weird. Oh, weird it's got to be some early, early Zach right yeah. there. Yeah. The thing <laughs> I'm happy with is the CBR that I have have has all the ads that are in it. The Ryder Technical Institute ad, the the, the trucker, and um, but it's got like the grit ad, the super T-shirts. And um, the, the one that I was always curious about as a kid was the seven-foot-tall Frankenstein monster. <laughs> and it, it, it says glow-in-the-dark eyes. And if 
you know, all the time as I was a kid, I just thought that the full thing was glow in the dark. I didn't think it was just the eyes that were glow in the dark. And I was really curious what that was. Is it just like a wall hanging? I'm sure or... it's a paper thing. I think it's hinged cut arms. Out, yeah. yeah, to cut out yeah. some. The, the fact of the way the arm is coming out, it makes you feel like it's almost three-dimensional. And so it's like, that was one of those things that that, that had my interest at in the x-ray specs, of course. Well, it's uh, like that uh, you've seen it in earlier, probably Silver Age books, you see that Polaris submarine you used to be able to get that I'm sure was just a cardboard box painted. Yes. Could, but it looked cool. I'll tell you the name of it. There's, <laughs> there's a really good uh, YouTube series by a, a female host. I cannot remember the name, her name or the name of the series. But if you if you hunt for it on YouTube, you'll find it where she explores that. She explores uh, products that were advertised in comics that you could oh. make pay for back in the day. And she shows like the tank, the Polaris sub. Um, some of the other things. It, it's fascinating stuff, and she does it in a very entertaining way. Yeah, they're, they're really good videos if you get a chance to hunt them up. It's like the, uh, you ever seen the sites that have the old Sears wish books that you can download and look at? Yes. Yeah. 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 But you know, I'm always, I've always been curious about grit. And if, you know, there, if anybody actually bought it, read it, was it, you know, my grandmother did. Yeah. My grandmother used, she, uh, I, I think my, some of my uncles, uh, when they were kids, I think used to hawk grit door to door, I believe. But anyway, she, <laughs> uh, she had a subscription, uh, as long as I can remember. And when star Wars, uh, the star Wars strip ran in grit, she used to save me the papers so that when I went over to her house, I could cut the grit uh, Star Wars strip out of those papers. So yeah, grit was a real wow, thing. Wow, I didn't know it. Star Wars ran in grit. It, it's funny because it was um, it was the Russ Manning strips, the the same ones that ran in the daily paper, same storyline, but because grit was on a different schedule, I, I think it was a weekly. Um, the stories were then reformatted into it was like a block like, like in the Sundays you know when mm -hmm. like in the daily paper peanuts would be like a three or four panel strip but on Sunday you'd get like that that half a page block story yeah. if you know what I'm talking about that's how Star Wars appeared in grit was as that block oh. so it was the same exact story completely new artwork because they had to block it it was really cool it do was like a parallel universe story do you still have your clipped out artwork I have some of the grit ones. Um, I have all of the daily paper ones that I ever got my hands on. Almost a complete run of the series, but the grit ones were kind of hit and miss. Um, so I have some of them, but not many of them now. And I've been waiting for that stuff to get reprinted because Marvel has been reprinting um, the the daily strips in the daily format. You know, like so you get like a big, nice hardbound book of the daily strips. Um, they've done, I think they've done all of those now, but I don't know that anybody's ever reprinted, uh, the grit stuff in mm. like a nice collected edition. And that would be awesome. Cause yeah. like I said, it's, it's almost like a parallel universe because it's the same story, just slightly different, tell, you know, differently told. Hmm. It's funny. You said, Scott, when you said you saw this, you knew it was burn. I, when I was looking at this last night, I, I wouldn't necessarily, if I, there are parts of this that scream, to me, burn, but some of it, it just looks like, well, it's a cartoon, you know, cartoon, you know, car. It doesn't, 
when I look at it closer, it's like, yeah, I can see Burns kind of detailed handiwork in there, but it wouldn't necessarily click and say that's Burn. But there are parts of this when we get to him that it's like that character is absolutely a Burn character. And I'll, there's I'll something. Go ahead. I was just going to say, there's something about his art style. This is where words fail me because I've never been able to really describe how it is that I'm able to pick out artworks. My, my kids asked me this question once when they were little. You know, we'd, we'd be out somewhere and I would see like a, a piece of art or like a, like T-shirts. I would see T-shirts and go, oh, you know, that's a, you know, that's a burn Superman T-shirt or that's a, you know, a, a Garcia Lopez Batman or something like that. And they'd be like, how do you know that? How can you tell? And it's like, I don't know how I'm able to do that, you know, where, where you just get used to a certain artist's style to where you can you can just pick them out. And there are certain burn-isms in this to where I might not be able to do it in every panel because there's a lot of it that that's just generic, on-model, you know, wheelie cartoon. Mm -hmm. But there's certain burn-isms in there, like uh, the very first panel of the second story, Go For yeah. Broke. I look broken at, is very indicative of his work. Yeah, yeah. I look at that the the car, the champ car, punchy clunker. Yeah, yeah. And I see like Ben Grimm in there somewhere. Yep. You know, and, and the Hulk. It, it has the same burn isms in the face. And so yeah, it's well, that's it's what the I, eyes. It, it's the eyes. It is the yeah. eyes, and I, I think the it's on my notes. I think it's. When he's dealing with a character that's not, he doesn't have a character sheet for that he hasn't have he doesn't have to uh, restrict himself to this is what Weeding looks like this is how you draw him when he's drawing his own character because I don't know if this punchy clunker or whatever showed up in the cartoon or not when I saw that I said that's that's a burn uh, that's his art style because it looks like when when Burn wants to draw kind of comedic and very stylized like he would in like mm -hmm. the what the book that came out the yep. comedy humor stuff that's how he draws it and that's what right. popped out when, to me when the little boy pablo was taken over the car in elswin tim and you saw the car resting back on its haunches it made me think of this hmm. um yeah again you know you'd have to you'd have to look at that uh scott to, to see what we're talking about but uh yeah, I mean, you, you can see it, but it typically shows up more in the extraneous characters rather than the main characters. Well, I think uh, it's, like when, it's, oh, sorry, go ahead. But when he's when he's hitting that one car in the very first panel of Go For Broken, the way that other car is being hit also has that, yeah, that's John Byrne drawing that, but, you know, in a very cartoony way. But look at the amount of detail he puts in the non-main character characters. Mm -hmm. the, the side characters and these ones he's kind of come up. There's so much more detail in those drawings in art and Wheelie and the Chopper and uh, Rotary or whatever her name is uh, than the rest of them because he's going off a character sheet. These, he's just drawing straight off. You know, he's coming up with the idea. So that's why I think there's more detail. The inking is a little... Um, it's not just big uh, fields of color like he does with, with you know, in some parts of this, when he's drawing Wheelie and the rest, it looks almost like a coloring book, you know, and somebody just come you, you along. Know, it's, it's funny. They don't say who the writer is on the, in this issue, and they don't uh, list it on Mike's Amazing World. Yeah, I, I think it was it Joe either. Gill. I think it was Joe Gill because he seemed to write a lot of the rest of the series after this, after issue three. But the Go for Broken Story 
And again, it comes out years before, but that's the story of Rocky three. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and the, the 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 second story, the, the third story there with the the baddest dude in town, um, that's the the guy getting um, you know at the beach, you know the bully at the beach. Insane kick this story. Yeah, yeah. Does it? Uh, uh, since we're talking about kind of punchy clunker here, him and all the rest of the car, all the other cars that are in this this demolition derby, because the way he's drawn the 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 gorillas, their teeth and the eyes and their eyes are lower. Don't they look like the alien assassins from the last Starfighter? Zandozan or Zandozan? I couldn't remember what they were called, but exactly what they look like. Yeah. You smell something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, um, what's his name? The actor that played it. Uh, he was also the bad Cardassian. Gold, Gold Dukat. Same actor. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, oh. Mark Alamo. Yeah. yeah. Or Alamo, how you pronounce it. Remember the Alamo? Okay. <laughs> now, did you find it, it weird that these two stories are back to back? Because Wheelie, I, I don't know what his actual character is, so I don't know if you could say he's out of character, but his character is reversed in the two stories. So in Go for Broken, he his pride is wounded. So he goes into that demolition derby, even though he's, you know, he's outclassed and, and all of that sort of thing. He finds his courage. He goes in there and he wins all on his own initiative. But in the very next story, he's goaded into having to do all this so that he can save face in front of his girlfriend. It's the same scenario, but two mm -hmm. different ways that he goes about it. Yeah, and in in, in, in the, set, the la that last story, he gets sick, and I, I guess he gets, has to get a valve job. <laughs> yeah, he's got carbon on the valves, and so he needs new plugs and points. And so once he gets all that, he comes back again. You know, it's 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 Rocky Three, uh, just <laughs> different bad guys. I will and say, yet, I, I love the design of this race car. This uh, uh, hot rod bad dude. Yeah, hot rod. Uh, I hate the name, but I love the design on it. It's it's a lot of detail. <laughs> it looks cool. Uh, and that again, that's another burn character. That's absolutely he. He almost like he stands out compared to the rest of them. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll need to do synopsis of these stories because I think <laughs> I mean they're simplistic enough, and they're short stories. They're what eight pages each, um, or you know around that. But yeah, it, it the 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 hot rod character. Let's see, he's bad dude car K A R R like the villain in Knight Rider. <laughs> Knight Rider, he's it's right. He's yeah, he's a night industry roving robot. And uh, you know he's got a little bit of Grandpa's Roadster from the Munsters, and <laughs> uh, a little bit of um, golly, what was what was that guy's? Uh, was it Harrison Ford's character in American Graffiti? Oh, uh, Alfalfa. Oh, yeah. Bob Falfa. Bob, Bob Falfa. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that's what, it. Made me think a little bit of that. I could be wrong though. Well, the hot rod design looks a lot like you know there was uh, in the seventies. There was a series of models. They were kind of like super deformed. That's a Japanese term that they used for some of their stuff. But it was it was always some guy poking out of the cockpit with a huge like gear shift and then the oh, car itself yes. is very 
was very distorted and, and out of proportion. That's what it kind of seems like. There was, and there was a model kit by, they were snapped together, or think, or something that you could buy. Um, kind of like the, oh, what's the character that's the Hot Rod guys that went after? If it's the Rat or... Uh, yeah. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? There's a cartoon yeah, somebody yeah. drawn that. Yeah. Yeah, I know I'm like absolutely yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, because my, my dad was a race car driver, so yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> wow. I'll tell you, another thing that's interesting is Rotary, if you painted her white, uh, is a caricature of Speed Racer's Mach 5. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> yeah, it is. Her. Wow, it I'm is. A huge, yeah, I'm a huge Speed Racer fan, so that's like the only reason why I would catch that. But uh, yeah, you can almost expect to see Spritel and Chim Chim in the trunk. <laughs> Well, why do you think, since we're just kind of jumping around here, uh, this this has some of the problems I have with cars that I it, it frustrates me because I don't understand the rules. That yeah, this is an these are anthropomorphized cars. These are the cars are the world. You know, there are no people in this world, but mm-hmm. there are all the conventions of uh, our world. There's houses. There are beds. Yeah. There are things like that. So that's what frustrated me about cars because, like, what are the rules? What, you know, why why does it look like this? Why did why do we have these things? So, uh, to somebody whoever. It's, no, it's funny you say that because it's something I don't think I've ever consciously thought about. But maybe that's why I don't really dig cars. Because because of that, I think somewhere in my subconscious, I, I realize that this world isn't has no logic, mm-hmm. or or it's or the logic is flawed, and so it doesn't work for me. But yeah, you're right. It why would they have doorways and things built for human beings if there are no? Why would their world not be tailored to their biology? Yeah, yeah it it's makes sense. And I wonder who who brought up Herbie. Uh, I wonder I if, so I'm gonna give you credit for this. He doesn't talk, you know, and I know he doesn't talk in the cartoon. He just, he makes sound, he makes sound effects and then he can't talk. He has text that'll show up on his, um, his windshield. So he does have some, he does talk a little bit. If they are mimicking Herbie, I guess that they're, they're coming from that. Cause you know, Herbie just did everything through his horn or the noises his car can make. He never actually spoke, but that kind of gave him a character. And I wonder if, because this is 75, so it was Herbie. Herbie was 68. Herbie was 68, but then it was, there was Return of Herbie with. uh, um, Herbie rides again in 74. And then Herbie goes goes bananas bananas. in 80. 80. So this could have met the second one with uh, Dean Jones, right? That's the second one, Dean Jones? It was the first one. Uh, Helen Hayes was was in the the 174 where they were uh, wanting to buy her building or get her house. Yeah. Because it was yeah. owned by was Dean Jones in her first one or the second one? I don't know. This one had Ken well, Berry and it. Stephanie Howers. It's Ken uh, Berry. Okay, G- Dean Jones is in her first one with uh, with uh, uh, Buddy Hackett. Sorry, That's, yes. I love yeah. that film. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. <clears throat> yep. But I wonder if that's it. That's the point. Maybe that's why they decide because everybody else talks. You know, everybody else you know, is vocal, but he, and maybe that makes him more innocent or, you know, they are trying to play on the, the whole Herbie, uh, the whole Herbie thing. So, well, what got me to thinking about it was just thinking of, of, you know, 
how would we how would we describe this to somebody who's never seen it, who has no idea what Herbie and the Chopper Bunch is? And my my elevator pitch would be: this is Herbie meets Cars. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, and surprisingly, in the first story, the Choppers play a big part. In the second one, they're just kind of off to the side, either mocking him or just commenting on things. So it's right. It's not. You know, I guess it's more in the, the two of there's more wheelie than uh, um, uh, than uh, than to him and the bunch. Of course, I just realized that he's a red Volkswagen, and isn't that what uh, that cliff jumper in the Transformers? Or was he a Volkswagen? Or was he a a rally race car? I thought Bumblebee was a Volkswagen. I, I've never watched the, the Transformers cartoons, unfortunately. What? I've, oh, I've yeah. only seen the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I actually I have, have the movie on DVD here and I've or Blu-ray, and I've never watched it. Um, my my late friend Sean Kaufman uh, was always trying to get me to watch it and telling me about great you know lines and stuff. Here's a hint and and such and you know said I need to watch it and for some reason and I think it's the same thing that Scott's got with with you know this is that I just could not get into it. Now, when they made the live-action movie, um, you know, I have a family, and so we go to the theater and we watch these things, and the first one was kind of cool, and again, it was diminishing returns as it went on. Well, if you watch but, the, the... If you've got the animated one, the one that came out in 86... Leonard Nimoy and Orson Welles and mm-hmm. others doing the voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got yeah. that. You've got that, watch it, because that, that gets dark. That's not necessarily a kid's film. Uh, there's some dark parts of that. Uh now, the th- my wife, uh, it, again, she loves that movie uh, just bunches. I mean, she was a big Transformers fan as a kid. That's one her one geek cred uh, that she had before she met me. So it's like, you know, I, I'll have to get it out and, and bring it up. She's yeah. just now getting interested in anime. So this is... Oh, there you go. Good. Well, since we're talking all about the cartoon, we I don't know if you looked at the... This is already applied to the comic, but uh, they had some... You know, they had... Uh, Chopper is voiced by Frank Walker, who of course is Megatron, yep. mm-hmm. and right. uh, Scrambles, who's a like a mini bike. He's uh, yep. Don Messick, who is uh, Scooby Doo. Oh, <laughs> now and, Paul Winchell did did Revs, who's the one that did the Spoonerisms. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, uh, now, and that was like they the scrubbing bubbles from the the old mm-hmm. TV commercials back yeah. in the day. And but the guy that did High Riser is HR Puff and stuff, and Grimace. Oh, he voiced Grimace also from McDonald's. Now, did Paul Winchell do a lot from TV? Uh, he did, oh, but he, I did find out that he—he he was yeah. the voice of Tigger. Yeah, but Paul Winchell uh, created the first artificial heart. He was apparently a medic, and he was also a, an inventor. So he designed and built first implantable artificial heart yeah but he was also a ventriloquist so he had a lot of, um, a lot of hats man come on they're all nuts man all <laughs> ventriloquists are nuts they scare the crap out of me <laughs> <laughs> it's like like some people in clowns ventriloquists just yeah. but he was the voice of dick dastardly and gargamel from the smurfs there you go I, had, See, I, I was trying to remember what the voices were like on that show, and I thought one of the characters had Gargamel's voice. I was pretty sure of that. Well, he was the one that was doing the spoonerisms and, and you know, just uh, all the um, in, in the cartoon. He was the one that I that 
I could more easily recognize than any of the others. Like I couldn't tell that that was Frank Welker. Mm-mm. You, you um, hear a little bit it. of Megatron in there, but not a lot. Yeah, uh, I, I just didn't catch it. It's funny that the choppers look a little bit. Uh, of course, right now now they wouldn't be PC because one of them looks like he's wearing kind of an old Nazi helmet. Uh, right. I think that's uh, that's Revs, and the other one is wearing a. I don't know. Like I think he's more like one of those leather type biker, uh, biker hats. But they look a lot like the the Gobots. Some of the characters in Gobots look a little bit like these guys. Yeah. Well, that one guy's got a, a like a ski cap, like one of the guys, the the one from uh, the Fat Albert show that had yeah. it all the way down his face. Well, he yeah. would say he he was grunge before there he was, was grunge. <laughs> yeah. Well, Scott, let me, did you, you say you own this, right? You own. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Did you just pick it up because it was burned or is that the reason why you went or did you just have happen to just stumble across it? Uh, well, no, I was hoping you were going to ask me that. So my, my thing with burn is, is I, I was just fascinated with the guy. Um, it's funny cause most people seem to have discovered burn with, you know, his run with, uh, with Claremont on X-Men. Um, I missed that somehow. I kind of vaguely remember it being on the stands when I was discovering comics as a kid, but I discovered burn with FF, uh, with one of his very earliest issues and was just really taken with the guy. So by the time he got to Superman, um, which, you know, Superman's my guy, by the time he got there, somewhere in that process of discovering him and, and him getting the assignment for Superman, uh, I just became a total John Byrne mark. So I actively sought out anything and everything that I could find uh, with John Byrne, whether it was you know just a cover or whether it was you know a pencil assignment, inking assignment, whatever it was, uh, I sought it out. And you have to remember, this was way before the internet. You know, this was yeah. pre-internet days when all you really had was thing. You know, you were very limited on your resources for finding. Uh, you know, where these things had happened. There were no complete lists. You know, nobody had made them yet. Uh, and was, so it was a some, lot of. There were some comic magazines, and I, I, I think that uh, like the Overstreet Price Guide at one point had put out. Uh, a list up to that point. It wasn't complete even up to that point, but right. uh, I remember I used that as my my guide in the '80s when I was sitting there going to comic book yep. shops and just looking for that stuff. What, which yeah. is a shame so now because with, with all the resources now, you, you kind of lost the. And it happens occasionally. Just finding something and go, oh, I didn't know he did this. No, right. I didn't know he did this cover. I don't know, or, or, a, or he doesn't do the cover. You look inside, like, oh. I didn't know. Sometimes I wrote it. Right. It was something he wrote. He was like, I didn't know he wrote this because he's not doing the artwork. There was something much more magical about it back then in that discovery process because I can remember there were certain things that were uh, often in contention as well because there's a cover of, I want to say it's Jungle Action. I, can, I can't remember exactly. All I remember is it's it's a picture, a cover of... The Black Panther cornered in a spotlight. He's like up against a wall or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember yep. that being in contention whether that actually was a burn drawing or not. Because I don't believe the artwork is signed. And some people said it was and some people said it wasn't. So it was that sort of thing. 
Um, but it was just so much fun uh, to travel around different places and dig in the cheap bins and everything and discover these things. And I, I was very proud of myself that at one point in Burns' career, and this would be post-Superman, right around the time that I, you know, we, we, he he ended up losing me for a time when he he just did a lot of what I consider that were far beneath him. Um, you mentioned Blood of the Demon earlier. I actually wrote Burn during that time and said, "Dude, what are you doing? You you were you were doing Superman. Why are you doing this? You know." But anyway, up till about that point, I was always really proud of the fact that I had everything Burn had ever published at, at that point. You know, every cover, every story every you know even the novels he wrote things like that. i was a burn freak man uh but one of the happiest discoveries i ever had was when i found uh the issues of wheelie and the chopper bunch that he did in i'm pretty sure i found him in 50 cent bin somewhere i was like wow Holy crap, you know because uh i didn't know that until today but i was looking somewhere i forget where um i stumbled across a site that said this issue we're looking at ranges about 35 bucks which is about 35 bucks more than i would ever pay for it so <laughs> you want to hear yeah, something you want to hear something that'll kill you um i was sitting there doing you know doing my checks and looking around and i found that someone had gotten bought in an auction all of the burn art, all 22 pages from issue three of Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch for under $700. Wow. But that was in 2002. Wow. If that were today, that would have been, God, it would have oh, been yeah. insane. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Exploded, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, a, I mean, I'm, I, I count myself lucky enough that I own two original burn pieces of art. I mean, really? I own a page. On the splash page from his um, Star Trek run when he did uh, Year One, it's a page when they're beaming down to the planet that's occupied. It looks like an old-time planet or something. Uh, and then I've got uh, a page from Spider-Man Chapter One. Um, but it's expensive, man. It's just really... I picked up the last one in Boston when I saw him because he had some of his Star Trek stuff there. Um, but yeah pages you didn't art start you know getting comic art is extremely expensive but i don't own i wish i did own everything uh i there are huge gaps because i even some of his x-men i don't own all of his x-men stuff because that just gets pricey yeah to try to own i pick yeah. them up here and there when i can find them but mm -hmm. um but for the most you know i've got some of his like i've got all his ff i've got all his alpha flight i've got all of his superman uh you know the all of his hulk you know that's not hard, but uh, uh, it's it's some of the later stuff like Trio. I don't have all of that. I didn't own Babe until I ordered it for the show, and I still haven't got it. Uh, and some of those, and some frankly, some of that stuff is like, well, you know, I'll read it, but I don't necessarily want to own it because it's just not something I'm interested in. But. Yeah, I I don't actively hunt them down anymore, and and I have since called uh, some of the older ones that I had, like I had. Uh, you know, the stuff that he did a, a crossover in Daredevil. It was Daredevil and Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider? Yeah. yeah. And I had both chapters of that and I ended up selling them, you know, because they're not really characters that I follow or anything like that. I really yeah. only had them because he worked on them, that, that yeah. sort of thing. But 
Uh, I was always curious. It's funny because as I was collecting it as a kid, I always thought, you know, one of these days I'll have a complete John Byrne collection. You know, somebody somebody might pay big money for that. And now I'm curious (laughs) if I ever had sold it that way, what kind of money it would pull down to have like, you know, the complete John Byrne from 1970, whatever year this is, you know, to like 1989 or whatever, you know, if somebody, you know, what somebody would pay for that, you know, I, I have no idea. But I had it, <laughs> whatever year that was that uh, that I finally you know started to, to let things that he did kind of slide by me because I was just like I don't need you know X book just because you know he he did it if I'm never gonna read it or it doesn't further my collection type of thing. Well, it's funny because I go through that as my I, I haven't I haven't culled through any of my stuff yet, but I've gotten pickier about. Uh, what I what I pick up, you know, I my my goal is, and I know I'll never achieve this, but my goal is to have a whole run of Amazing Spider-Man, and I've got I'm getting down now to the below fifty run, so those are getting astronomically expensive, so I really can't afford those. But uh, and I'd like to get all the burn uh, burn complete my burn X-Men, but uh, I get to be, and this goes with toys and stuff I buy. It's like. There was a time when I would buy Spider-Man stuff just because it was Spider-Man stuff. And then now it's like, eh, do I really need a Spider-Man bath towel? Do I need a Spider-Man sandwich? <laughs> yeah. You know, that kind of thing. It's like, uh, if I don't like it, why should I buy it? So It like occurs that. to me, I, I think you bought a bunch of my Burn uh, X-Men, didn't I you? Bought, yeah, I, bu- I think I bought some of your X-Men. And I bought, I think I, I bought your Gwen Stacy uh, Spider-Man books. That's right. Wow. That's right. Yeah. That's you know, what I was missing. Now I don't remember what you paid for it, so don't don't kill me for telling you this. If you want to know, if you don't want to know, I won't tell you. But did, I, I can't remember if I've ever told this story on a show. Do you know what I paid for those? Uh, probably less than what I paid you for them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> significantly, significantly. So I uh, there used to be this uh, this great little father son comic shop in in Carrollton, Georgia, where I moved here from. Uh, they've been gone a long time, and I got to be really good friends with the two guys that that ran the shop. And so, a lot of days when I would stop by there, uh, they had just picked up uh, a, co- a new collection because they were the only shop in town. And when they first opened, like everybody brought their comics there to dump on them. You know, they were selling them their collections like crazy, and they were beefing up, you know, the store inventory. So I go in there one day and they had just acquired a brand new collection. And I asked him about it and, and uh, the dad who ran the shop, he said, oh, you, you know, you're in here all the time and everything goes, uh, he goes, I'm going to give you first crack at this. He goes, we haven't even looked at it yet. He goes, uh, whatever you want, 10 cents a book, fill up a box. So I start digging through <laughs> and about the, it, it couldn't have been more than 50 books into my flip through. I found both of the, the Gwen Stacy issues of Spider-Man. So when I took him up to the counter to pay for him, he just gave me this look like, oh, you <laughs> SOB. You know, he knew, but he'd already told me and, you know, God bless him. He he was a man of his word. He wasn't like, you know, because I can see, you know, these days, any sensible shop would probably be like, eh, you know, I know I told you tens. I can't do that, you know, but no, he did. Yeah. He, he let him go. And I, yep, I got, uh, what is that? 121 and 122. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Amazing Spider-Man 121 and 122 wow. in really sweet shape for 10 cents a piece. Yep. 
They could be in terrible shape, but it'd be great for Tim. Yeah, no kidding, right? They could be missing coverage. <laughs> My that, only kind of story deal like I'll that. Never get again. Right there. Oh <laughs> yeah. man, I just uh, sent you guys a link to Heritage Auctions, uh, the John Byrne pages they have available right now. There that are in under bid right now. So mm. they've got a page from Superman uh, issue nine, um, which of course is the Joker issue, um, right. and. Man of Steel number two, and this is the first time we see the you know uh, Superman using his heat vision. An ish, uh, a page from Legends, uh, the uh, splash page from Fantastic Four two eighty four, and all of these you know are the the original artwork that he did for these, and they're all right now. They've got like a day and a half left to bid on these, and they're all under two thousand dollars. Uh, the Superman number nine, uh, page twelve, has gone for five hundred and fifty dollars. And I mean, these are just uh, if if I had uh, you know That's... had the money, I would be sitting there going on there and just you know, I, obviously someone's going to snipe it at the end, and the bids are going to go up significantly as you get to the end of the auction. Well, yeah, and it's probably somebody who it's not an individual person who just wants it. It's somebody who's got a lot of deep, who's got some pretty deep pockets, is going to pick it up because they know they're going to resell it. Uh, it's not, you know, that's, you know, that, that's the, the, that's kind of why I stay off eBay now because eBay is, I know you kind of soured on a toot, Scott, but eBay has gotten where it used to be a place you could find stuff cheap, but now it's, everything is either vintage or somebody thinks it's got some inflated, uh, value attached to it and you can't pick up, you can't just find stuff cheap anymore. The, the only way you can still because I still get really good deals on there the only way that you can still do it anymore I find you know for the most part is you got to do it in bulk like you you buy like a whole collection to get the few that you want and then hope to hell yeah. that you can resell the other ones and at least recoup some of your cost mm-hmm. but it, it's getting rarer and rarer and rarer to get like that really good score like uh, a couple of days ago I got a uh, I can't remember which issue it was, but an old issue of uh, Adventure Comics. It was like $3 shipping included. I couldn't pass it up. And I, I'm sure it's because the person that sold it doesn't know what it is, and they're not a comics dealer. You know, they're just, they found it in, you know, Grandma's Attic or something, and they just and get rid of it. That's getting hard to find, too, because of the internet. It's hard to find somebody who just, oh, I don't, you know, oh, I, yeah, I found this in the attic. I don't, just I want to get rid of it. Right. You know, they immediately got to go. They're going to go online and look it up and go, oh, this is worth, you know, $5,000. But, you know, my brother reaches right. out to me every now and then. He goes, hey, I got a buddy up here. It's got a huge collection of books. So you need to come take a look at it. And I said, you know, I said, read me the title from one book from each box. <laughs> and it's like brute force and wildcats and oh yeah, all the yep. stuff that came out in the 90s. And I'm just saying, you know, find a dumpster. <laughs> yep. My, my, yep. That's what I always tell them too. Yeah. Do yourself a favor my, and throw it away. <laughs> my only good deal I ever came up with was uh, I scored uh, – and I, and I should know the numbers, 161, I think. The first appearance of the Punisher uh, in Spider-Man. There's oh, a guy yeah. I worked with who uh, was, uh, that 161? Or was that 131? Oh, 137? I, sh- I feel like I should be able to just rattle this number off. And I should, too. Be yeah. blanking. But, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, I don't know how he got it. And he was a huge Star Wars fan. And I happen to have... Just because I got him for Christmas and I wasn't really collecting him, but I had some 
uh, Return of the Jedi figures still on card. I think I had the uh, Rancor Keeper, and I had Yoda, and I had, I think, the um, uh, Jabba playset, the Jabba on his little throne. And I just happened to keep those. And he said, hey, he was interested in them, and, and he said he had a cop that comic. And I said, okay, I'll trade you for him. So I gave him the figures, and I took the comic. <laughs> that was my first impression, you know. When I was younger, the first impression I could really do was the Rancor Keeper. I had to cheat. I had to cheat and look it up because it was going to keep me awake tonight. 129 was the first one. <laughs> one is that one? Wait, 121 was that's the Gwen Stacy, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The Punisher, I think, is 137. No, it's 129. The one we're in, 129. Where he's on the cover shooting Spider. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. Yeah. That's the ones that I was hard when I was when I was collecting my Spider-Man because when he kind of it wasn't until Zek put out his limited run and then suddenly the Punisher shot up through the roof and all the retroactively made all the his other earlier issues go up in value and you couldn't you know you couldn't touch them. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny they they still have not really come back down either. The the early no some of, stuff. Yeah. And what's funny is what I find in a lot of. Uh, uh, dollar bins. I never find. I don't know where um, uh, Professor Allen finds quarter bins because in Texas there are no quarter bins. No. There were dollar bins. They're about the cheapest you could find. And the, there's a comic store here in Vegas I went to that had dollar bins. And I'm surprised at how much burn. I find a lot of Alpha Flight. I find almost whole runs of all his, like the first 20 issues of Alpha Flight. I'm always well, finding know, those in these. You know why bins. that is, right? I, I because used... of the. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just wonder, was it because of the, the print run? Did they yep. just print so many? Yeah, because I, I used to wonder about that years ago. You know, why the hell was it so hard and so expensive to find uh, uncanny issues? But as you say, you know, 50 cent bins all over the country are full of his FF and Alpha Flight run. And it's because yep. by that point, burn was a thing and Marvel knew it. So they were printing massive print runs because he was a superstar. He was he was yeah. you know a, a Todd McFarland or well I'm still dating myself. I don't know who the hot new guy is <laughs> present day, but whoever it is, Burn that was Burn back in his day, and so those those later titles had huge print. I mean that's why uh, even today you can still find like Superman Volume Two Number One uh, in fifty cent bins because they were just mm -hmm. massively overprinted. Um, back I found back. the I found the the sealed Death of Superman at a at a uh, recycled books in Dallas, and I got it for like a buck. It's yep. still sealed in plastic. I yep. remember in the, in the mid '90s there was a guy that went around called Comic Book John, and uh, I've told Tim about this before. But he would go around and he would get into like Holiday Inns, Motel Sixes, and places like that get their ballroom and he would line the entire wall of the ballroom with long boxes and you basically any book was a dime and so you just take an empty long box with you you go in there and you just fill up and i was able to get tons and tons of man of steel issues and superman ones and twos uh the hulk run the entire hulk run 315 to 320 
um, you know, along with uh, a bunch of other books. I mean, I, there were obviously other books in there, but those are ones that I could find in just droves. And this helped me actually pay the bills uh, later on because all <laughs> the like the Hulk issues, they all went to five bucks a pop uh, for a while there right after that. And I paid a dime a piece on those. Isn't that a great feeling when you can either like pay the bills or like uh, buy a major appliance or put down mm -hmm. a down payment on your house with comic book money? Isn't that a great feeling? I bought a car once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bought a 77 Mustang with uh, the sales of Green Lantern 12 and a couple other books. But the other books were ones that they really, really wanted because it was Bernie Wright's art. See, my uh, my missus did not know about all this, and I say all this like you can see me, but I'm at the moment I'm surrounded by tens of thousands of comic books. Mm -hmm. But she didn't know about all this when we met, when we dated, when we got engaged, even when we first got married. She had no idea. She knew I collected comics, but at that time I, it was like a, a you know, one long box on the side of the bed. My parents back in New York still had all my books, and we we were married several years before my parents moved south and they brought all my comics with them and they needed a, a you know a, a basically a tractor trailer and uh i remember to this day bringing them in the house just box after box after box and she remains non-committal to this day whether or not she'd have married me if she knew about <laughs> all this ahead of time you know so yeah <laughs> but you know, the first time we made uh, a major purchase and I paid for it with comics, I I don't know that she would admit it, but I think I grudgingly won her respect, you know? It, no, it was no longer just a, a big foolish waste of time and money, you know? It was, uh, she could kind of see some of the value in it, you know? Yeah, with, with my wife, she's of the mind that any book that I value is worth the same as Amazing Fantasy fifteen. <laughs> and 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 so and and she's got an entire collection of like Walking Dead, and such, and uh, that she's cultivated, but and and she thinks that of course is enough to buy us a new house, and you know <laughs> every every if she she overvalues everything like the people on on Pawn Stars or right. you know <laughs> those shows and such. It's 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 very endearing. It's 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 very entertaining. But it's like if I want to sell something now, I I, I you know. Feel like I have to do it on the download because I know I'm never going to get near as much as she feels it's worth. <laughs> Only thing I've ever sold was I I I, uh, I I got rid of some of my stuff at a garage sale and I, I uh, went through a lot of my not I haven't sold my comics because some of it's just a pain in, in the rear to, to to post stuff and keep up with that. But I sold a lot of my Legos because Legos once they're you know out and they they're kind of out of print, the price just goes through the roof. And I was able to, you know, you know, I sold some of my lesser stuff because I want to keep my like my it's mostly my Star Wars Legos and some of the stuff like that that I sold. But uh, some of the Legos you can make a lot of money on, and once it's out of print, it's, it's just like a book um, or a record or a, you know a DVD that's out of print, you know, and the price is shot up on it. So, uh, right. But my wife's pretty pretty patient. She's you know, for her it's not so much money; it's more the space because I've got a whole room that's full of my stuff so you know we have a whole room we can't even use that was at one point so full I could really couldn't walk in it so I couldn't even use it as a room 
and I I need to go through and cull through that and just but that's just I mean it's just a, it's a big undertaking you don't want to just take it and give it away you want to you know methodically go through it and see what you can make your money back on it so right. she's had she's had a lot of patience you know in the time we've been together for that so I give her I give her credit for that yeah I've got one thing I want to tell and it's not actually a comic but a comic book related and that is. Um, back in 1986 or 87, I was in uh, Turkey. Uh, my parent, my my father worked there at the time, and um, he uh, uh, he showed me the place where they make and sell Mirsham pipes. You know, does our Scott? I'm sure you're familiar with them. No, you know the, what the, is the, that? the the white pipes that they you know that they carve they they carve them from volcanic ash. And like, if you go into a lot of the the older stores, or the smoke shops and stuff, they'll usually have a section of, of like oh, Meerschaum okay. pipes. Yeah, and, like in uh, like in uh, National Treasure. Is that- right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, back in '86 and '87, you 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 recall John Byrne was working on Superman. So yep. uh, I, you know, basically took a bunch of John Byrne artwork into this shop, and I told the guy. I want a pipe of Superman flying. And, um, you know, they, they said, well, we're going to have to charge you for this. And they charged me a whopping $50 to do it. But (laughs) the thing was like, I commissioned it in in the summer of 87 and they couldn't finish it. The artist that was working on it got into a car accident. So in the summer of 88, when I went back there, uh, they had it finished and I'm going to see if I can put this uh, where you can see it. Uh, you know, they finished it and it was um, not quite, you know, what I expected. Because I was really hoping it was going to be like, you know, look like John Byrne's art. And uh, it didn't. And he looks more like Boy from Tarzan. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, <laughs> I, it, <laughs> But at the same time, it's got almost a very Kirk Allen look to it, uh, and yet the 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 legs, the way that they are, it's it's almost very uh, feminine. And I just put a picture there in, in that in that Facebook messaging. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you saw me picture. It's actually pre- it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it is uh, cool. It's just not what. And it's a one of a kind. It's a one of a kind piece. Yeah, and they they said they would never do it again. Because, uh, they, number one, you know, in, in a country like that, they look at Superman and all that stuff as just kid stuff. And adults just do not pay it any mind whatsoever. It reminds me of, uh, if you've ever seen some of the illustrations that are in the very first printing of the Adventures of Superman novel mm-hmm. from back in, I think, I think it's in the 40s. It kind of looks like that to me. It's funny. But uh, yeah, that's that's one thing that I'm sure you know. It's like I, uh, my friend Weldon Adams, um, he used to run comic book shops here in the area. Now he works at Heritage Auctions. He, you know, he's one of the I guess you'd call them curators. Things come across his desk all the time. It's like recently, he was able to bring in and sell through auction the big splash page from X Men 137. So the the two page of the X Men on the transporter pad. Oh right, yeah. yeah, 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 and they sold that for like two hundred grand. That went that went for auction for like two hundred grand. Good. So Lord. yeah, I mean, 
And every now and then they have these um, bring it in day and they'll do like antique roadshow kind of uh, appraisals of the stuff that you bring in. So I'm going to have to take it in there and just kind of see what kind of value this has. Now, again, it's, you know, it's like 32 years old. Um, and they, they, there's no other like it in the world. So it's got some cachet there, but I just don't know what kind of value it would yeah, have. That's the thing. You don't all. know if, if, yeah, you don't know if they, if that gives it value or if it's just like, okay, well, you know, you, you know, if you'd had your head carved on it, would it be just as valuable? Cause that's one of a kind too. I mean, what, um, it would, it would certainly appeal to a Superman collector, I think. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it is one of a kind, uh, would make it value, but you know. Maybe that's that. That's your new house payment right there, Scott. Come in, <laughs> I mean, um, Brian, not Scott. He'll say, he'll say, uh, now, so Brian, this is worth now. If it's uh, my thousand dollars, if it's if it's my new house, okay, I'm there. If it's a house payment, uh, uh-uh, no way, <laughs> not gonna happen. Well, and see, that's a thing I would never sell because that's part of kind of your childhood. It's a one of a kind thing, and I would probably, unless you absolutely had to, let go of it. I, it's, it's something I probably wouldn't let like, go. Oh, I've got um, a kid that's incredibly bright, and I really want to see him go through college. <laughs> you know, and and Tommy better get a job. <laughs> you, you know, that's that's uh, big, been an increasing discussion, but uh, he, he's just incredibly bright. Uh, he's been looking at paleontology, but he's starting to branch out somewhere. So we'll see what happens. He's thirteen. Yeah. He's got time. Uh, you can talk to Fanula. She's an anthropologist. Yeah. So, uh, Wheeling the Chopper Bunch. Uh, <laughs> now, while that, that, of course, was, you know, the, the book that we picked, I think that this is more of a, of a great gab session. And uh, I hope that when we put it out the episode 10, that we'll represent it more as that than uh, Wheeling the Chopper Bunch. Um, <laughs> it, it's just an excuse to talk to Scott. Let's yeah, but I mean, when, when you do the art, I think you should take one of Scott's pictures and just put it like on Superman's body or Captain Kirk's body, or <laughs> you know, just uh, something along those lines. That would be uh, that would be great. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I haven't even thought about doing the artwork for it. I'm curious for each of you what what's what's your favorite burn or, or some of your favorite burn projects, like favorite runs that he did or, or something like that. I mean, you know, the thing is you, you kind of have to, it's like what we did last week when we were, we went over the top five covers that we, each of us, uh, you know, what we considered to be our top five covers. And the first thing I said was, well, we have to kind of disqualify and not call up X-Men 141. You know, that's the days of future past cover with Wolverine and Kitty in front of the, wanted posters and the cover to x-men 137 you know you you just have to put those aside it's like when you're talking greatest movies and you have to cut out star wars and jaws and just put those (laughs) aside and talk about other movies because otherwise you're going to spend all your time talking about something you've talked about a million times right so so you know i sit there and i look back and i'm just sitting there trying to think now what you know what what were the things that i mean i really loved the marvel team-ups and again, he didn't write those. He worked right. on with Chris Claremont or Bill Mantlo. But those were so awesome because, you know, they, they, again, that was the, the early showcase of his art. And it was really, really cool. Um, I really, really liked, and Tim and I went over that um, last year, the little Black Panther Storm backup story that was in the back of uh, Marvel Team Up 100. Um, but, you know, the Fantastic mm-hmm. Four run to me was probably... 
And yeah, I'll say, I, I will say it. I'll go on record right now saying that John Byrne's Fantastic Four run is simply the greatest run in comic books, even over Stan and Jack's. Um, it, it, you know, basically stood on and built up their run and made it greater for the work that he did in his run. And that he was able to accomplish so much and just give us so much, uh, a, a real good peek inside the psyche of all the characters. And you know, yeah, none of none of them got short shrift during during his run. I think that his handling of Ben Grimm was was so amazing, and as well his handling of Reed Richards, the voice of Reed Richards during his run was so perfect and so well handled that you know I heard this voice in my head talking all the time, always making sense. I think that because he has such reverence for uh, the Lee Kirby run mm-hmm. that. Uh, that's it shows in that in that run of his stuff. I would put for me. I might go with um, just for sheer uh, quality and something. I guess that impressed me when I read it was his Omac, his oh yeah four issue Omac run. Yeah, um, and I I really dig his Alpha Flight because that and we talked about that when we covered it was. It was so different. It was kind of so separate from the rest of the Marvel stuff, and it dealt so much with the Canada itself. It was as much of a character in the book as the actual characters were that uh, I kind of wish he'd stayed on a little bit longer because I kind of liked the mysticism and kind of the, the magic and the kind of stuff that he was good dealing with uh, with that book. So, I mean, obviously his X-Men run is, is... I can read that Dark Phoenix over and over and over, but mm-hmm. stuff that, you know... Stuff that's just his. I mean, that's him and Claremont, but stuff that's just stuff he is responsible for. I'd go with those right now. What about you, Scott? Um, for me, it's uh, it's it's tough because I discovered him with FF, and I have an incredible soft spot, you know, sentimental sweet spot for that stuff, uh, especially the very earliest issues. Um, the man with the power to mm-hmm. me is, is just such a great story. You know, it's, it's simple. The art is beautiful. And between that, and I think it was the prior issue, the one uh, where the priest comes to Johnny uh, at the Baxter building, you know, those, those two issues just informed everything you need to know about the FF. So if you were just getting into them, like I was, I really didn't know a lot about the FF when I picked up Burns issues. Um, it, it got you up to speed and, uh, and it's just great stuff. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it the greatest run ever, but I'll totally agree with you that I think he did a better job than, than Stan. I think he took what Stan and Jack built and plussed it. I, I think his stuff is, is better. And I know that might sound sacrilegious to some people, but I, I think it is, you know, I, I think it's been done a couple of times. You know, uh, one of Byrne's best friends is uh, is Roger Stern. I think Roger Stern's run on uh, Amazing, yeah, uh, writing-wise, is better than Stan's uh, for much the same reason. He he took what Stan laid down and, and plussed it, you know. I'm totally uh, there with you on that. I totally agree with you on that. Again, you know, uh, I'm assuming that you and I are probably in the same age range. I turned 54 this year, and yeah. I was reading those books, the Roger Stern ones, when I was in my you know late years of high school, early years college, 
And so that Peter Parker, it so resonated with me and, right. and who yeah. I was and where I was going. Again, you know, I was a journalism major, so there were other things that was, you know, grabbing onto that for me. I mean, I, I, I had things in common with him and with Clark Kent. Um, but, you know, that, that the Spider-Man's definitely been my favorite character. And, and you know, the, the Roger Stern run just really, really spoke to me as a person. Not as what a superhero, a, but as a person. Of everything that Burns done, though, um, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd still have to go with his, with his Superman run. And I think largely because, I mean, for one, it's awesome. For two, it's beautiful, but he he did something for Superman that I had waited a long time to be done with Superman, which was he um, he just made him awesome again. Because when I got into Superman as a kid, Superman was uh, he was kind of waning. You know, he was at the end of the Silver Age. And about the time I got into Superman is when the movie came out, you know, Superman, the movie with Christopher Reeve. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking out of that movie and, and then really wanting to get into Superman comics. And that's when I started buying up anything I could find with Superman and almost invariably being just very disappointed that the comics, you know, the current day comics coming out at that time just weren't like the movie. They they were kind of stodgy, you know, uh, especially art-wise. You know, the art just wasn't doing it. Who was doing... I'm not up on my Superman. Who was Kurt, about 77? So who's doing Kurt Kurt primarily, writing art? Yeah, it was primarily Swan, Kurt Ross Swan. Andrew. But, you know, Ross Andrew yeah. and Gil Kane were doing a lot of, of pencils at those times because I always referred to Ross Andrew and Gil Kane as not Kurt Swan. I don't right. think I've ever then, seen a Gil Kane Superman. And then you had Kurt Schaffenberger, who was yeah. primarily Superboy, but he would do a lot of Superman too. Well, who was writing? So, who was doing Carrie Bates. Chores? Yeah, I mean, you had Jim um, Shooter in the early yeah. '70s and Carrie Bates. Carrie Bates, mostly um, and at that, Patskow, yeah. So well, yeah. So you know, I, I I take a lot of flack from people for saying, especially longtime Superman fans. I, I get the feeling a lot of them hate me because I I go on and on, you know, with the thing about Kurt Swan, and it's not that I'm a Kurt Swan detractor. I mean, I respect the guy immensely. He he drew Superman for something like thirty years, and you got to respect that. But but my point has always been that by the time I was coming in, you know, you're looking at the end of the '70s into the '80s. Uh, everything else around Superman had moved on. Yeah. You know, comics had matured, storylines had matured, art styles had definitely matured. You had Byrne, you had George Perez, you had Neil Adams, you had Bill Sienkiewicz, you had Frank Miller, and they were doing amazing things. You had Alan Moore and uh, Steve Bissett on Swamp Thing, and you know these amazing stories coming out with beautiful artwork and they were just more mature and, and seemed more intelligent. And where was Superman? Superman was still with these just moronic silver age type stories aimed at like six year old kids and just this stodgy fifties and sixties style art in the middle of the eighties. 
And, and then we got for the Superman who needs everything. Uh, no, Superman who has yeah. everything. The Alan Moore, yeah. Dave Gibbons one that that crept in there and surprised everybody. And that was right before Crisis. Yeah, and that was that was what I was hoping for. Is you know I loved Superman. I loved the character, and I wanted so bad for the comics to just reflect how I felt about the movies. You know that they were so cool, and and you know Superman had. He was just, he had a presence and it was just fun to watch, you know, him do his thing in the films, but then you would pick up the comics and it was just so lackluster. And the only issues, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I had, you know, the, the, the outlets for what you're talking about there were there in little bits. Justice League America at the time was, was the time when I think Jerry Conway was writing and George Perez would come in to do the arts. Right, right. And then Jim Starlin was doing the artwork on DC Comics Presents. And right. uh, Len, Len Wein was writing a lot of the stories. And Len Wein you know, did some great things in there. He had a Superman actually questioned himself or got too overconfident. You know, he's like, I, I can take care of this. I'm Superman. You know, and, and yeah, so we got to see that there. But yeah, the regular books, Superman in action, yeah. were stuck. And, and I think that's, yeah, I, I, that's where I was kind of going was, I, I think that's what made it even that much you know made me ache for it that much more because you did have those examples that you could point to you know and especially if you were trying to you know illustrate the point to somebody else you know like a like a friend that just didn't get you know why you were so into superman because they saw it the same way they'd look at it and go ah you know the art's terrible and it's you know they're silly but then there was there were glimpses there was like the the Alan Moore issue of uh, of DC Comics presents you know with Superman and Swamp Thing you could point to those and go here's a, a more modern take with with you know incredible art in an adult story or you could point at you know some filler issue that uh, that Garcia Lopez did the art or Neil Adams and so you knew that potential was there. But it, it was only like in fits and spurts. It'd be like some one-off somewhere. But on the regular day-to-day or you know week-to-week, yeah, uh, or month-to-month adventures of Superman in action comics and Superman, it was just the same old stodgy thing over and over. And so when Byrne got that assignment, I was just I was so excited because here was, you know. He was getting my guy. He, who was this artist that I loved and had been following, and at that time was you know voraciously devouring you know anything and everything I could find of his in the back issue bins, you know hunting up you know Hulk and all these other things that he had done. Uh, and then I hear he, he you know he's jumping over to DC and he's getting Superman. I, I you know I can't tell you how excited I was about that. And the dude delivered. I mean he reinvented superman and you know superman fans have never had it so good as when john byrne was on superman it's well he kind of set the town for superman for about the next 20 years yep uh when he revamped it but um i'm, I'm curious as to why because my uh, I'm, I'm more of a marvel guy than a dc guy so uh you know in the 70s when uh i i i think batman was getting a little more mature and didn't wasn't uh and getting into artwork and uh, the Green Lantern, why they kept, why they decided to keep at that point. I mean, would you consider at that point Superman to be their flagship, or was it Batman? No, it was still it was definitely Superman. Batman didn't become a thing um, until the first Burton movie. 
Um, cause Batman, uh, I mean, was often right on the edge of cancellation by DC, you know, the, the TV show saved him for a time and, you know, and generated enough goodwill to keep it running, you know, into the eighties and, you know, for them to get to the movie and all that. I thought Dark Knight uh-huh. Returns really but kind also of dark, yeah, I was just going to say Dark Knight, I thought, dark Knight gave set the tone. Yeah. Big boost as well. And then Batman Year One and, yeah. Yeah. Frank Frank Miller, yeah. Frank Miller coming in to Batman from Daredevil, definitely, you know, I, I think that's a big reason why the movie got greenlit. But, I mean, I was a Batman fan and a Batman collector um, just as long as I was a Superman fan. You know, Batman's always been, like, my number two guy. Um, but that was, I can tell you as a kid, it was tough to be a Batman fan prior to that movie coming out mm-hmm. because Batman, I, I know today's, you know, kids and collectors, they, they can't fathom this thought, but Batman wasn't cool. Uh, Batman had this terrible stink and stigma on him from the sixties TV show. To where even people that read comics still looked at him as a really silly, stupid character because of the 60s show and all the, you know, the cheese and everything of that show. That's how they saw that character. And so it was it was tough, man, going into a comic shop or, you know, or wherever and, and picking up back issues and getting the stink eye from, you know, whoever <laughs> rang you out that, you know, why are you buying that crap? And then look at it today. You know, that stuff's worth a fortune. So. But, but yeah, the Max Allen Collins stuff. Uh, but <laughs> well, it's, I mean, look at look what happened to the the X Men. They were on the verge of being canceled to the right. point they were being reruns, yeah. right? And then Burn comes along, or actually Cockrum comes along, and then they kind of get revamped, and then suddenly, you know, through the nineties, are the hottest ticket out. But um, yeah, that's you know, it's you know, the thing is, is like, and and Burns the first one to say it is that you know his X Men didn't sell that great it wasn't until after he'd left the book and word started getting around and people started going back and looking at those that the the interest in x-men really exploded right so so, so i mean you know, again you know for the x-men books that uh, that burn did work on the value of those is probably going to jump up a lot in these next few years simply because there wasn't as big a run on those as there were on you know the the later stuff and ex- right. now, of course, they did that. They were still under the old newsstand model, too. So a lot of those books got destroyed if they didn't sell. Yeah. You right. can still find his his books were not... A lot of times you go to cons, they'll have them... I always look for those bins that have all their stuff marked down half price. Right. Yeah. And you can, you can pick, you know, you can pick up significant burn issues for... 12 bucks, you know, yeah, the, 10 bucks, 12, 15. But, but those are typically readers... You know the ones that the other people have read over and over a number of times because you can usually tell by the, the you know the the, the spine or whatever. Uh, you know it's yeah. like usually if they're in very very good condition, you're going to pop them up over twenty thirty bucks. Right. And I'm fine with my, all the stuff in my collection doesn't have to be uh, near mint. Uh, as long as it looks like the cover's attached to it, and it's not absolutely just uh, dogged and and increased, and some kid hasn't drawn all over it. I'll I don't have to have a pristine copy of something because I'm settled. With, I'll settle for a four point five if it's uh, a tenth of the price of a nine point because I'm not, right. you know, I'm not buying something that's slab that I'm not going to open up anyway. Yeah. Now, Scott, we're going to give you homework now. Uh, your homework assignment is to read through those X Men Elsewhere 
uh, CBRs I sent you. So and, and I saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, you, you're not going to regret it. I'm, I've really, really enjoyed those. It, it, it is uh, uh, something that that uh, most that are reading it would say is that he does need an editor. In that, you know, like some of his choices on where he's taking the story or whatever, and, and reflashing back on some stuff. Uh, he, he could definitely use someone at least to bounce the ideas off of before he, you know, puts them down. Uh, that being said, though. This stuff is really, really great. And when you get into the Sentinel storyline, you're just going to be, oh, my God. Because it, it just gets balls out nuts. And you're bringing in the Avengers. You're bringing in the Fantastic Four. And it is a huge Donnybrook with Sentinels. Well, I wonder what uh, what's Stern up to these days. He, he should partner up with Stern for this stuff. Because Stern was his editor at one point back in the day, wasn't he? Didn't mm-hmm. he edit the X titles? Yeah, he he uh, edited the X titles when when he first got onto it, and then Louise Jones took over. And uh, again, you know, I don't know how much of this is true or or what, because it's all hearsay and it's not necessarily from Byrne himself. But Roger, as the editor, gave Byrne a lot of latitude on you know how he was doing you know the the plotting and such in the story. That's how Byrne got his plotter credit. Uh, on the book, whereas typically, you know, he would be Art Robot and just go off the the writer's script. But since they were doing the Marvel method, and he was actually, you know, he and Claremont would talk, they'd get the plot together, then he would go and draw the book, but then Claremont would come behind him and script it. And Claremont, of course, would do put a lot of stuff in there that didn't, you know, he didn't think needed to be in there. You know, he would change things or you know re- rewrite the dialogue to fit something else uh, another storyline you want to do case in point in days of future past that little missive about cape pride kissing the the spirit of kitty as she comes back to her body and 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 burn has always said that right there ruins the entire story of days of future past because what that says is that they weren't successful in changing the future Right. Because the moment that, you know, Kate deflected the, the, the crossbow bolt and saved Senator Kelly, that should have changed the future and those X-Men should not have existed. And exactly. so Kate's, Kate's, yeah. Kate's mind should not have gone back. But by having that in there, Claremont opened the door to all the other stuff that he ultimately did, Nimrod and all that. And that was one of those things that just, you know, graded on burn. But when Roger Stern left to go and write... Louise Jones came in as uh, editor and she gave Claremont more latitude. And, you know, basically it's really his book. He can do whatever he wants as the writer after you've done the art. And after the incident with the tree stump and Colossus, are you familiar with that? Right. Um, it, you know, Byrne got so upset. He just said, no, nah, that's it. It's the last you know thing. And then they offered him Fantastic Four. So, you know, the rest is history. Well, that's funny about some, giving uh, Claremont more uh, control of it, I guess you'd say, because f- from my point of view, back in the, I would say the 80s and through the 90s, maybe, yeah, through the 90s, it was always artist. That's who you follow. That's what kind of drove, to me, drove the book. It was like, oh, this guy's drawing that. I'm going to go because it was very visual. You're going to go over there. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere about the 2000s, it flipped, and suddenly it was the writer. The writer was more important. That's the person you're going to follow. This oh, this writer's on this. This writer's on that. And you know your 
Brubakers and your uh, Jason Aarons and your uh, 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 Bendis, those guys came up to more prominence, and it was okay. It was, they were more important. They stayed with the book. The writers kind of came and went mm-hmm. because they, you know, they would do five I, issues, and they somebody else would come. I out. think you can thank Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane for for the the changing of the status like that. Well, I mean, certainly when they were doing Image, I think all those books were based on the look. It was based on art, mm-hmm. not the, whoever was writing it. Uh, but I think they but, muted the the artist's power as a result of, of what they did. Yeah, could be. Because you don't see, you know, as many writer-artists these days as you used to. It's it's right now, like you said, it's a writer's market. And the artists are just, you know, uh, you know coincidental. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, tell, right now, who's a top? Who's a top artist right now? I have no idea. Yeah, can, you I, can name. You I, can probably name four or five top writers that you know of, but who's a top artist? I mean, one, they don't stay with the book long enough. Yeah, I mean, show I mean, me a book that a writer, an artist is on it more than four issues or five. Right. Issues. I mean, and the thing is, is like the artists that we know that are still working today and still relevant enough. Um, you know John Romita Jr. But we all, you know, everybody's got their opinions on what's happened with his art of late. And uh, you know Neil Adams is putting stuff out, but you know at the same time, you know he kind of picks and chooses his stuff. When he goes DC or something, it's kind of cool. I still like it. Yeah. Is uh, Romita Jr. Is he still at DC doing Superman? Batman. Uh, He's done Batman now. I think. He's doing Batman now. Okay. I don't. There was a I Superman Year One that he was doing with Frank Miller. And I only got the first oh, issue yeah. of it. I, I wouldn't mind reading the rest of that. It wasn't uh, bad, you know. Didn't didn't uh, distort anything as far as I was concerned. So I'm kind of interested in going back and, and finding the rest of that. But I just, you know, I haven't been to a. I mean, I've been to the comic book shops, but you know, you have to get them when they come out. Yeah, uh, they only buy I'm not a reading, small I'm not reading load of those books. I'm not reading any contemporary books. I'm I've kind of off that. You know, just because the price is just too expensive. I'm just trying to, I'd rather spend the money on filling in holes in my collection. Did we lose Scott? Yep. No, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say, I think we need to, <laughs> to, to wrap up here. I know that. Well, yeah, we you know, do, because it's late for you guys, and uh, <laughs> I need to go eat supper. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to keep you guys, or you guys. I, I, one, I want to say thanks, Scott, for hanging out with us as long as he did yeah hey thanks for thanks for having me i've had a blast i i could talk john Byrne all night long <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to have you on again well you yeah, pick a book and we'll uh you know the thing is aside from the the x-men else when you also need to check out that that uh star trek new visions you know i know tim wanted to do some other star trek stuff here soon and well, uh yeah i wanted you joke, to do that again a joke that i meant to throw out right at the beginning of the show and it it <laughs> I totally forgot. So I re- just remembered it here at the very end. But, uh, you know, all this time I wanted you guys to have me on the show and I finally make it on. And what do I make it on for? Wheelie and the Chopper Punch. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to cover something a little more substantial next time. <laughs> well, you, you, you'd mentioned exactly. in the past Indiana Jones. And, uh, you know, that would also oh, be something yeah. cool to cover. Um, yeah. You'd even talk to, we, we, I think we were talking about Chris Honeywell joining for that one too, since it's, part of that old star wars monthly monday that you guys did you covered the indiana jones stuff too didn't you we we did and i've always regretted that we didn't finish that series we finished star wars and which is why we never finished indiana jones because uh we started doing in you know indie as kind of like the backup 
mm-hmm. uh, to our Star Wars coverage. And then, of course, Star Wars, Marvel Star Wars ended uh, and we we didn't know what to do with Indy. You know, we never spun him off to his own show or whatever. So we did the first, I don't know, maybe dozen issues or so. Um, the series as a whole is okay. It waxes and wanes in quality. Mm-hmm. But those first two issues by Byrne, um, Byrne wrote, drew, I think he did pretty much everything on those. And much like his Star Wars, the dude nailed the feel of the world. It's funny, too, because all that existed at that time for Indiana Jones was Raiders. That was it. Yeah. So so he was kind of inventing more mythology for the character as he was going along. And uh, those first two issues are awesome. And I, I think what the, the best accolade for those first two issues is that at the time that, uh, what was the, I think it was called West End Games, the, the D&D yeah. people, uh, that they were creating modules for the Indiana Jones role-playing game. One of the modules was directly based on his two-issue story uh, from Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Oh, wow. Cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good stuff. It's really good. Yeah, Scott, I, have you ever considered, mm-hmm. I mean, you probably don't have time for this, but considered revisiting... Star, the Marvel Star Wars with possibly like Rifen or you know or maybe even you and Chris doing it again or is that just too big an undertaking <laughs> I'm supposed to talk to Chris tomorrow night and see if we can figure out how we want to cover the Star Wars newspaper strips so yeah wow. we, we oh that'd be cool yeah we it's been on the you know I mean it's been on the docket forever and a day it uh it's funny I, I was just talking to somebody about this and I can't remember who it was but I think sometimes I worry that that you know our old listeners are afraid that like Chris and I had a falling out or something. No, it's just <laughs> life got in the way. I mean, we still we still communicate. We still you know hang out you know online and stuff like that. You know, he lives in New York. I live in Florida. But I mean, we're still best friends. You know, there was no falling out. There's nothing like that. It's just you know, Star Wars, Marvel Star Wars ended. You know, our coverage of it ended, and then the show just kind of fell apart after that because that was the backbone of the show. Um, yeah. But we've always meant to you know pick up and, and carry forward, and I think we finally might have found a hook with uh, with doing the the newspaper stuff, which I've always wanted to cover. Because I love the Russ Manning, and he loves the Al Williamson, and between the two, that's the entire run. So, wow. yeah, well, and that stuff, as that I say, now. that stuff just—I'm uh, sorry, I'm looking forward to that now. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, and that stuff. Well, I just wish you got wish the you... hardcover, you know, the bound hardcover treatment not long ago. So that's what really kind of lit the fuse is when the stuff finally got reprinted in what I consider to be the proper manner, meaning how it appeared in the paper. Because Dark Horse had reprinted, uh, I don't know if they did everything, but I know they reprinted in two separate runs, the Manning stuff and the Williams stuff. But what they did was they took those newspaper panels and re-edited them into a comic book format, which is fine, but they're strips. They're newspaper strips, and that's how I wanted to see them. And thank God Marvel finally did that. So they're out there. I'm still waiting for you guys because I don't think you finished uh, Star Trek Monthly Monday. We didn't. You never finished. You did. And that was my gateway. That was the first episode <laughs> that I listened to that got me into all of this. And I probably, I probably I was like for Star Trek stuff. Shouldn't bring up Michael Bailey and Crisis on Infinite Earths. Oh, no. Please don't. Please don't. Um, that. 
Oh, it, it breaks my heart because I, I swear not a month goes by that I don't hear from somebody going, oh, I wish you guys would do more episodes. Yeah, me too. Me too. I I have strongly considered, I mean, to the point that I've sat down and plotted it out and, and everything of uh, not so much picking up the old show because I always promised Mike, you know, we promised each other we wouldn't do the show unless we could do it together. Uh, but I have strongly considered either picking up where we left off with a brand new show and, and just doing it myself or um, doing something that it's essentially the same thing, but just on a completely different show. You know, so the, the thing that the thought that keeps occurring to me is to do the crisis because that uh, of every comic that's out there that I've never talked about fully in podcasting, the crisis is the big one for me. That that's like the Mount Everest, and I would like to do Crisis True Just because we started it and we got I don't know three issues in I think, and then that's when everything just kind of are. But so I I think about it way way more than I should probably. But that that's definitely one of those things. Uh, eventually, God, I want to finish that so bad. You know, it's a shame to put have put so much work and investment into that and just never finished it so that that's yeah. what I, I think about a lot well you know the thing is you and bailey both have this voice that evokes incredible sentimentality so that when you two get together and start talking about this the it tugs at the heartstrings it really you know takes you back and and makes you you know yearn for comic books to be done like this again Aww. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just uh, as podcasters go, you guys, you know, uh, when you guys got together and you and Honeywell got together, you know, there was an enjoyment that came from it. And, and some it didn't matter what the material was because you guys made it interesting. You talked about, you know, how it stirred you as young men. And, you know, the, 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 the audience that we have is guys just like us. And, you know, the audience does increase a little bit. We're getting some younger people in, and that's good. But they're not catching on to that part of things like we are. And, uh, well, yeah, go ahead. I I was saying, I think the the magic ingredient when I was listening to the early shows, because it was just Scott and Chris, Mm -hmm. was the chemistry. Mm -hmm. You could tell these guys grew up together. They were best friends. They knew each other. And you could just sit there and listen to them talk for an hour. Uh I had to kind of the same reaction for uh, Dinner for Geeks, Rifen's group. Those guys just get together yeah. and just basically shoot the breeze, and it could be about anything. But you could tell these guys knew each other. They were friends. They had a, they had a pretty good chemistry, and they bounced off each other. Uh, so I react to that kind of show. So it's just like I just want to hang out with these people for an hour, and when you're listening, you feel like you're kind of hanging out with them. So I, I think, you know, I think there is a certain science that goes into podcasting. You know, there's there's certain things that really click with people. And, you know, it, it's one of those things you try not to overthink it. But at the same time, you know, you, you try to make sure that you're doing certain things. And to me, that was the always the big thing is find some way to connect with the audience. Because I listened or used to. I don't so much anymore. But, you know, prior to to when I became a podcaster and then definitely when I, you know, was, was first a podcaster, I'd listen to a lot of shows and try to figure out 
what works and what doesn't work, especially the shows that I would listen to once or twice and go, I can't listen to this. And invariably with those kind of shows, what it is is, you know, are you are you talking with me or are you talking at me? Because if you're talking at me, then you're not engaging me emotionally in any way. You're you're not telling me, you know, a uh, perfect example is uh, I, I think it's kind of slacked off now, but there used to be a lot more of, of, I think it was Mike that coined the term index shows, meaning you would pick a subject like, say, I don't know, Fantastic Four. You'd start with issue one and you were just going to cover every single issue of that series in order. And there were a lot of shows like that. And, and a lot of them were really good. But there were some of them that were just dull as dirt. And the ones that were dull as dirt were the ones I, I finally realized what it was, is that you're telling me everything about this issue, you know, every minute detail, you know, who who wrote it, who drew it, who inked it, uh, the circumstances of how the story came about, the reaction to the story, everything. But you're you're forgetting the prime ingredient. How did it make you feel? You know, how how did you feel yeah. about it when you read it right. when you were four or, you know, whatever. And and that's what we always try to do in the shows that we did is that, you know, I wouldn't we wouldn't just talk about an old episode of Star Trek. We would talk about watching it when we were kids. How mm -hmm. did you feel? Where were you in your life? What impact did it have? You know, did it make you laugh? Did it make you cry? Did it make you go, oh, God, this sucks. Something <laughs> to make, you know, to engage the audience uh, on, on an emotional level. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, these are the secret ingredients to podcasting. Cause I'm, I don't have that high opinion to myself, but for us, that's the stuff that worked. And, and I hear it from people all the time that, you know, that especially the ones that write to me and go, when are you going to get off your ass and put out some <laughs> new episodes? You know, that that's the stuff that they liked and that's yeah. very great i mean that's just a really good feeling to think that you know at the end of the day podcasting for me has always been really just an excuse for me to hang out with my friends and shoot the breeze you know mm -hmm. so the yeah. fact that people were actually listening to these things and and you know and will write to me and say you know and i, I can't tell you how many letters i've gotten like this where people would write and go you know, dude, last year I was just having a hell of a time. I lost my mom, you know, maybe I lost my job. You know, we, we, we moved and I don't have any friends, you know, whatever the, you know, just dire circumstances that some people have gone through in my, in their lives, you know, and they write and they tell you, you but you know, what helped me get through was listening to you. And I'm going really listening to me. Cause I'm, I, I sound like an idiot half the time. Really? <laughs> but but yeah, you know, and, and the fact that they would be really sincere about that, it, it it really means the world, you know, to any podcaster, but especially to me, you know, to, to get, yeah. you know, feedback like that, that, you know, because I, I can't get my kids to listen to me, but somebody else will tell me that, you know, well, I've listened to every show you've ever put out. I'm like, dude, you have way too much free time on your hands, <laughs> well, all right? You know, the, the thing is, because, like I said, the tone, the timbre of your voice and all that does lend itself to that this the sentimental tone that you're you're trying to push off and that is is one of the the great ingredients i don't know that you knew you had um when i started listening you know to to two true freaks it was because of burn i was listening to your show on the untold legend of the batman 
and I just started picking up on on your your episodes. And of course, this guy kept writing into you about the same things I would write into you about. And um, I mean, again, your your Titanic show. If, if if nobody's listened to that, you need to get pull that down and listen to that one right now. That's one of the one of the greater is, episodes on the network. That um, is. Uh... Of, of everything that we've ever done. And I, and you know, again, I hope this doesn't sound terribly big headed, but I think we've done some really epic stuff over the years. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we've been at this now, it'll be, it'll be 12 years this year um, that we've been podcasters, Chris and I, and we've done a lot of shows covering a lot of stuff. Uh, some really great episodes, you know, some really crap episodes. <laughs> but uh, of everything that we've ever done, and I always worry that this hurts his feelings because this was a solo project I did all by myself. But of, of everything I've ever personally participated in, that's the one I'm most singularly proud of because I was scared to death to do that episode because – Titanic is so near and dear to my heart and I thought there's there's just no way I can I can capture how I really feel about that subject without sounding terribly maudlin or just you know I'll, I'll be honest with you when I was editing that episode I just kept listening to it going God, I sound ridiculous I just I you know <laughs> is anybody gonna even care about this you know because comics in the Titanic you know the, does that does that even cross over you know but I tell you, I get more feedback on that episode as as single episodes. And I mean, the, the thing I get the most feedback on is Tales, because everybody wants that show to come back. Mm-hmm. But as far as single episodes go, that's the one I hear the most about. And that means the world to me, because, you know, if you ever take away anything from the 20 gazillion hours that are out there of me running my mouth, that's the one thing I'm I would want somebody to take away is you know, this, this horrible tragedy at the beginning of the 20th century that I feel is starting to slip out of, I, I feel like it's starting to slip into the realm of, uh, you know, the great pyramids or something, or, you know, digging up pharaohs, you know, and you, you got to remember that while there not, might not be any more living survivors, I mean, this thing only, it was only a little over a hundred years ago. It still impacts living people today, whether they were on the ship or not. And I just, you know, I I hate to see it start to slip into that realm of, of myth or something, you know? Yeah. Where the only thing people consider is the Cameron movie. Yes. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I'll I'll take Raise a Titanic over that. Um, have you seen, uh, this is for you, Scott, there's a, and I don't know who put it out, it's BBC or somebody, somebody put out a special a couple years, a couple, three, four, five years ago, and it was uh, all on the uh, the building techniques of the Titanic. So they actually kind of built a section of the Titanic hull, and they used the same tools that were available at the time, period pieces. So they, had, they built a little, you know, maybe it was 20 by 30 or something like that, a section of the hull on a dock. Using the same tools, I, I, and rivets, and stuff like that. I remember that being on. I'm not sure if I watched the whole thing or not. Because I'll be honest with you, um, I don't keep up with new stuff with Titanic as much as I used to. Just because I, I don't want to say I burned out on the subject. Because I, I mean, it still continues to fascinate me, and it's it's very near and dear to my heart. But because of the Cameron movie. We went from 
the Titanic being kind of like a like a small like there was just a small handful of nuts, you know, that were really into it and remembered it and you know, and then the movie comes out and it became a worldwide phenomenon, you know, and and it changed the fandom of it somehow, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so there was just this glut of a lot of them were like these really shoddily produced documentaries and, you know, stuff with just really sketchy, quote unquote, facts and you know, it was, everything was to make a buck because the movie had been this gigantic yeah. thing. And well, I only brought it. I only brought it up because of whether it's good or bad. I've seen bits of it. Uh, the host of the right. show is my wife's cousin, so <laughs> that's the reason why I brought it oh, up. Oh wow! Okay, kind of cool. I, um, like I said, yeah. I remember that one being on, and I I think I watched it, but I really I, you know, I really can't remember. But there there have been some really good ones. Um, fairly recently, um, I know there's one on Disney Plus right now with uh, James Cameron, uh, where they go back and they examine the wreck uh, and the, you know the night of sinking essentially with like new forensic evidence to see how close they came in the movie. That was actually fascinating. That now, was that good Ghosts one. of the Deep with Bill Paxton. Is that what that one was? No, no, no. That came out right about the time of the movie. That's called uh, Ghosts of the Abyss. That is yeah. a great. Documentary. It's it's almost like a companion piece to that movie. That's a really good one. No, this was uh, this was a National Geo, I think. Just very, it was very recent, but I I couldn't tell you the name of it. But it was it's good. It's on Disney Plus. It's worth watching. And there's another one. I think this might also be on Disney Plus as well, but I could be wrong. But there was another one. Um, I think it was part of that series where they talk about draining the ocean. Like if we could drain the ocean, this is what you could see type of thing. <laughs> and they do like the computer enactment of draining the ocean and then going in to explore Titanic. Like if it was sitting out in the sun today and that it's cheesy, it's so cheesy, but it's, it's also cool, you know, but I mean, don't look, you know, don't go into it thinking, you're going to glean some new, you know, insight <laughs> or something. It's, it's all for, you know, it, it's all for the surface value of it. But that said, it's still fun to watch. But, uh, to this day, it's, it's, it's funny. I think, well, you know, I was going to say, I was going to say my favorite documentary was this, this one I'll mention in a moment, but come to think of it, the, the, the one that still remains my favorite is the one that kind of hooked me. Uh, which is the the National Geo one from when Bob Ballard discovered the ship. That's still the best. And I think that's called Secrets of the Titanic. Yeah. Um, but then there was one, uh, I can't remember the name of it, that's hosted by Doug Llewellyn from the People's Court, if you remember him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the last person in the world you would think of to host a documentary, but that's a really good one. It's a, I think it's Treasures of the Titanic, I think is the name of it. That's that's a really good one as well. But yeah, there's there's a lot of really good ones like before the movie came out. But there's just such a glut of of like really kind of cheesy ones after the movie came out. Well, it's it's kind of mirrors what has happened to uh, JFK. Kind of geek fan- well, um, that no, I'm talking about geek fandom. Think uh, about it. You know, oh yeah, growing yeah, up yeah, as a geek. Yeah, definitely. You're on the outside looking in, and now suddenly it's everybody is it's it's it's. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's 
become fashionable to be geek. So you're no longer, you know, you're, uh, it's a lot of kind of wannabes and, um, you know, I don't want to use the word poser, but it's people that are, are kind of in the shallow end of, of fandom. They're not really in it, but Absolutely. it's become so contemporary and, uh, you know, so that it waters it down for those that are been in it. You know, like we've been fighting the fight forever. Now yep. suddenly everybody wants to wear an X-Men t-shirt or a, or a whatever it is, you know. Well, you know, it's, it's, I'm, you know, I'm pretty hardly... people are now geeks now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm hardly the hippest guy in the world. I don't keep up with all the, the modern, especially when it comes to political correct stuff. But a, a term recently hit me in the face on the Internet, uh, gatekeeping. And I, I take great offense to that. But when it comes to Titanic fandom, I will totally cop to being a gatekeeper in that aspect because the movie did exactly what you're saying. The movie brought in this wave of posers they're there for uh jack and rose they're not there for the actual disaster that actually really killed 1500 people and that's where my sensibilities get a little offended if you know what i mean and uh, mm -hmm. and that that's the big difference to me is that i approach it from this was a true historical event that not only killed real people but it literally changed the world Overnight, the world changed. Our world today would be radically different if the Titanic had not sunk that night. And that's where my fascination with it lies. And all these newcomers that are coming into it, you know, from the movie, they're coming into it from, you know, the, this fictional uh, love story aspect, which, you know, that's fine. You know, but, but you have to realize, you know, you have to draw a line between you're a fan of the of a fictional movie i'm a fan of a of a true event you know that actually happened in a in world history you know and and unfortunately you know these people that put out you know shoddy documentaries and and you know a quick book to make a buck they're they're not drawing that line they're not drawing that distinction to them it's all the same thing and that's where the fandom gets gets muddied and, you know, that sort of thing. And you're absolutely right. We, we've seen it, it's totally akin to the same things that we're seeing happen in other fandoms like, uh, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, you name it, comic books. Yep. And you know, then, they totally start, they, they, then, they, then they come up with, you know, depending on who you are, they're going to, you know, they, they, they coined the term toxic fandom. You know, that yep. actually, I think that came up around Star Wars. Yep. But, and I object uh, to that as well. Yeah. 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 Because if you are kind of a, a gatekeeper, as you say, it's more, well, you know, you just need to let that go or you need to be more flexible. You need to let in new ideas or or, you know, that kind of thing. And so if you have an objection to it, then suddenly, you know, you're a toxic fan. Yeah. Oh, I believe me, I could do I, I have resisted the urge to do a whole show slash rant, slash rant on that very subject because play, you know, have to play that hulk and music in the background right, exactly right? <laughs> oh, it's so funny you say that because i i was just you know as you guys know uh i just came back from bill robinson's house uh, i was over the last couple of days uh helping him organize his collection that's no joke took us two days wow um and that that came up in conversation and uh I think Bill was a little surprised that, you know, I, I keep my whole uh, soundtrack library on my phone 
And so he's he was I don't know how it came up in the conversation, but he was talking about, yeah, it's that time that Honeywell put the put the Hulk music behind you. And so as he's talking, I hunted it up on my phone and started playing it in the background. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, that documentary with Douglas Llewellyn was Treasures of the Titanic. I put that there in the chat. But, uh, you know, the whole thing that got this started was what what I was really trying to do was explain (laughs) to you that two days from now will be five years that Tim and I have been putting shows on the network. Wow. Yeah. And it's it's because of you. Uh, I mean, the thing is, you made me talk back to my car stereo, my uh, telephone you know, with the with my headphones. You made me talking out loud because you would elicit a reaction out of me one way or the other. I mean, we disagreed on things when we talked about you know when I emailed you about Star Trek and such. But you know, I can let that go. Uh, but you, you can't but, blame me crazy on me, dude. You, you can't. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. That's homegrown. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, you, you inspired us. And, you know, the, 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 the biggest thing I can say is thank you for, for being there you. And, and, you know, paving the way. Because like you said, you looked at what the other guys were doing and saw what worked and went with that format. And when Tim and I, you know, sitting there talking about the format... We talked about your format a lot for, you know, back to the bins and said, you know, this really works. And ours has morphed a little bit where we seem to get a little bit more uh, detailed into the art because we rarely cover more than one book, uh, an episode, because we just get so, so deep into it. Uh, But, you know, for the most part, we're following the format that you guys, you know, can't, you know, had. And I don't know that you started it, but you definitely perfected it for us. And in all that, you you made Tim here one of my best friends ever. So uh, thank you. Oh, and I I gotta give Scott all I mean not Scott uh, Brian all the credit for kind of pushing me because I never would have done this on my own. I'm too much of an introvert. <laughs> so he kind of came up with the idea. Hey, let's do this, and we talked about it. And then you know he's been kind of the big driving force behind this uh, uh, to get this thing done. So he keeps selling himself keep short. I'll tell you the date we met. We met at a. a <laughs> A Waffle House. What was it? Um, IHOP. IHOP. Yeah, IHOP in Dallas. And it was like two old friends had just got together and it was picking up in the middle of a sentence. And we talked straight for what, three hours there? We were there for a long time. Yeah. Just going on and on and on and on about it. It's the same. And I've I've told this on a podcast before. It's the same experience. Uh, Two years ago, Scott, we were all in Disney. It was just that it was a. It was the planets were aligned because it was honey. It was uh, you and Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland, his family, and Gene was there. Uh, and then we had a bunch of guys. Uh, John Wilson came in. Yep. And Shag. And it was just a. Was that two years huge, ago already? Was it? It's a, I think it's been two years. Because that was I think uh, it's been celebration. Than that. I thought it was longer than that. Wow. No, it was celebration because uh, I had those tickets that nobody else wanted. I had an extra ticket to celebration. That's right. Yeah, nobody wanted it and couldn't get it. Um, but we went. To, it was the day we all went to Disney, and we were waiting to see the fireworks. And Andy and I went off to get sodas. He was getting some for his family, and I went with him. And we walked over to um, a World Tomorrow, Landed Tomorrow, Future World. What am I? What am I? Uh, wherever the space needle is, we walked over there. <laughs> landed Tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry. We walked over there to get a, get a soda, and we were just talking. And 
he had said, you know, he mentioned he'd listened to our show and stuff. And it's, and I said, this is weird that this is the first time I've met you. I've, yeah, I've heard your voice from listening to your show, but I feel like I know you. And he's kind of like, yeah, I feel the same way. And that's how it is. And you kind of feel, you know, somebody that kind of just has the same interest and oh, and it kind of clicks. You feel like, yeah, I've, I've known you for a long time, but no, I haven't just met you for the first time. So yeah, familiarity. It's just right. Look what you breed. Look what you breed, oh, man. <laughs> that is a good feeling, though. It really is. Well, that was the best. I, I went there for celebration, and I didn't, I didn't really. Didn't, I actually left early because I wasn't having that much fun at the show. Uh, but spending time at Disney uh, World with you guys was my highlight of that vacation. It wasn't It wasn't celebration. It was spending time with you guys. So... Uh, when all this, when the world starts working again and everything is kind of back to normal, we need to have another, uh, uh, or you know, or or have it up in New York like we've had a couple before at, at Paul's house. We need to have another kind of freak freak fest. Uh, and Scott, um, Brian, you need to, you know, you need to make it. You know, save some money and and try to try to make it so that you can meet Scott and all the rest of the guys. I've had the luxury of doing that. So that's there's, there's ways I can make it work, you know, like February and March is always the best time to plan it out, not to schedule it uh, for, but to plan it out. Cause then I have money. Yeah. And I can sit there and say, okay, let's apportion this <laughs> money to this. Money's good. And then, and then it's there, <laughs> but you do it in April, May, June. I'm like, I, I don't get any money. I already spent it on this. I already spent it on that. You know, it's just, Yeah. Because I haven't done well, credit in ten years. Oh, well, that's good. <sighs> yeah. All right, so, uh, I'm one of those freaks, aren't I? <laughs> it's why I'm here. No, no, I, I try not to. Okay, have uh, any yeah. credit either. One last question for Scott. Scott, what would you like to see us cover on future shows that you're not going to be on? <laughs> future shows <laughs> that I'm not going to be on. Um, <laughs> Oh gosh, the the stuff that I have no interest to uh, to be on or, or cover myself. Let me think. Um, <laughs> no, but something you'd uh, like to hear us talk about. You know, that's the thing. I'm just teasing. No, I'm, I was just teasing. Oh, let me think. Ah. Um, well, I, I I have no idea if this is really true, but this is what I, I was told recently: is that um, the uh, fantastic cast, I guess, has gone off the air. They pod faded and had and, and they didn't quite make it to the burn era, right? And I know you guys aren't an index show, but somebody needs to index that run. I've thought about doing it myself, um, but I mean, I just I I don't have the time at the moment to do it. But I, I'd like to see somebody do that. Um, let me think. What else? That sounds like a job for the interns. Have you ever done? <laughs> Have you ever done uh, his Batman stuff? Because there's not a lot of it, but the, the, but what he's done is incredible. We haven't covered... We did this Superman 4, where he meets Batman, Superman 3. Man of Steel. Right, yeah. Man, Man of Steel, Steel number... Yeah. Is that 3? Three? Three, that's 3, three yeah. yeah. But we haven't we haven't looked at like his Batman black and white or the, the many deaths of the Batman... That, that I was we thinking, talked about doing that. I was thinking of that one, and also uh, the Untold Legend of the Batman is incredible. That's that's good. Although I think he, 
I think he only did the first issue. Am I right? Yeah, about that? he only did the first issue, and Jim Aparo did the inks, and then Aparo did the other two because he he was all ready to do all three, and they just never got the story to him for the second two issues. And right. by the time that they got, they they said we're ready. He's like, no, I'm already on my next thing. I gave you guys these three months right. here to work on this, and. You know, they just took too long. And I don't know if that was Len Wein or if that was something in the, you know, the editing. Um, right. And they were supposed to have Terry Austin ink it initially. And uh, because of the timing, he wasn't able to do it. And so then, you know, uh, Paro just uh, did the rest of it. Right. That's that's really good stuff, too. Um, Batman 3D. Have you ever done Batman 3D? No. We haven't. The, the, we've only covered really just you know what we talked about there, and uh, you know obviously we want to cover, um, you know I, I want to cover more Batman. I'd like to do Generations, but I think that would be something we do next year as an event, where we cover all three parts of Generations. They're coming out with an omnibus. I uh, Superman, Batman, I consider that. Yeah, I, I consider that you know, top of the heap Superman stories right there. It, it, it kills me that there continues to be these lists of the greatest Superman stories that, you know, have ever been told that get published. I, I see these in, you know, blog articles and stuff all the time. These, you know, greatest Superman stories. And they'll always do like for the man who had everything mm -hmm. or, or for the man who has everything. And, um, What's the what's the end of Superman story? Um, yeah, whatever happened to the man whatever story. happened to uh, you know stories like that, which are all right. Uh, Truth, justice in the American way, which I totally uh. agree is not a good Superman story. Um, you know, but they I never see Batman, Superman, Batman Generations, and that that is one of the greatest Superman stories. And uh, I, yeah, I, I, that that's a good one. That's one. That's what well, I've meant, always meant to do myself, and still haven't ever come around to. Set, As a matter of fact, about I that. think. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, go ahead. Uh, since, since I've got you, I'm gonna get you this opinion real quick before we before we have to get off the show here. Uh, another one that's always on the top list, and I've read it and I like it, but I don't know if it's that great. Is All Star Superman? So, you, uh, what is your opinion yeah. on that? The Alan Moore one. Um, no, 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 no. It's uh, Grant. No, Morrison. it's uh, it's uh, uh, quietly and uh, Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison. Morrison yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. I get get him mixed up. On That's, that. That's always right. up there as as a top. Uh, I'm not a big Grant Morrison fan, so um, and I like it, and I like I like quietly as an or, or I like him as an artist, but I don't think that story necessarily needs to be that that praise so I don't, I don't like it that well i i have a long-standing um i hesitate to say hate but it's pretty much what it comes down to i have a long-standing beef with uh with grant morrison the the guy can occasionally write a good story um i i have yet to read a good superman story that he's ever done the man does not understand superman on even the most basic level and I wish to God that uh, that DC, you know, if they want to keep employing this guy, that that's fine because I know he has his his fan base and you know that that he draws people in for DC and all that. But just keep him away from Superman is <laughs> is all I ask because he just he he just doesn't understand the character at all. Um, 
years I, ago, somebody sent me uh, a, a trade of, I think it was just the first, I don't, I know it wasn't the whole story. I think it was the first six issues of All-Star Superman. So I have read at least that much. Um, because it was sent to me for free, I, I didn't feel justified, you know, really giving a, a strong opinion on it. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was all right. Um, but no, it did it did nothing for me, and it just to me it just solidified my my opinion that he just he doesn't understand the character. He doesn't understand what makes Superman work and what makes Superman magical. Um, and it it just comes off. I don't know. It, it it's just a big miss for me. So I, I don't know. I don't. That's just my opinion. Like I say, I know the guy has has absolute legions of fans, and you know, there's so many people. You know, much like how I felt when when Byrne was was handed Superman. There, I know there's just as many people that felt the same way when uh, when Morrison was handed Superman. But you know, there's a number of people that I directly blame for where Superman is today uh, as a character at DC and uh, Morrison is high on that list. So <laughs> yeah, I I'd, I'd actually put Frank Miller and um, who wrote kingdom come. Yeah. Wait, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, Mark Wade, uh, you know, as, as yeah. the architects of Superman's downfall and I'll, I'll be honest, Scott, I think that, that you created the seeds for a, a, a two true freaks extravaganza, the rant show. Where we could sit there and get each freak to have their own rant on any subject regarding, you know, whatever character, whatever. And we could make a beautiful extravaganza show, you know, three hours easily. Uh, well, I don't know. That would just cover some people. Call it the two-two freak soapbox. As tempting as that is, I, I've, I've worked really hard... And, and I, I feel like I'm a complete failure at it, but I really have worked hard over the years to to try to change what I feel like is the lasting perception most people have of me as a podcaster. I, I never wanted to be the rant guy. You know, I, I never wanted to be, you know, the angry fan. I never wanted to be the contrarian uh, which, you know, I know we garnered that and, and that was our mistakes, you know, as young, well, not young, but as a uh, beginner podcast, you make certain mistakes cause you don't know. Uh, and one of the mistakes that, that is very easy to make is to be a little too honest. Um, and one of our very earliest episodes, we took a movie that was a worldwide phenomenon at the time, uh, in a positive way. And we gave our honest opinion that we thought it was crap. And I have struggled for 12 years to live that down, you know, to change the opinion that, uh, that I was just, you know, some contrarian doing it to try to get ratings or something, you know, which rating ratings don't mean a damn thing to me. I, I at the end of the day, it's, it's wonderful that people listen but I do this because I enjoy it and I, I like talking to my friends. So ultimately, if nobody listens, I, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't say yeah. I don't care, but it wouldn't stop me. You know what I mean? But to be dismissed out of hand, which has happened more than once. I've read some really nasty reviews of our show 
Um, I think probably the the one that hurt me the the absolute most was one that uh, Chris and I did uh, a commentary on. Um, I think it was Superman Returns, and we weren't glowing about it. You know, I mean, I have serious issues with that movie, mm-hmm. but I don't hate it. Um, and the the reviewer said something to the effect of uh, they loved this, but they hated X, which was the movie that we had given the honest review about early in the in the history of the show. That's all you need to know about these idiots or something to that effect. Mm. And that hurts, you know, that really hurts me that I can't give an honest opinion and try to back it up, you know, with, I mean, you can't say facts because opinions are not facts, but you know what I mean? To, to try to give examples, I should say, of why you feel this way rather than just going, well, it sucks and I don't like it. That to me is not an opinion. An opinion is it sucks for me because of this, you know, and, and right. give specific examples, which I try to do. I, I always try to, to back it up with, well, I feel this way because of this, you know. And I just feel like in this instance, we were just completely dismissed out of hand. Like, well, if you don't love this like the entire rest of the world does, then you're just a damn fool. Well, just because everybody else loves it doesn't that there's no merit in that. You know, it's like the old expression your mother probably used. If everybody else jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, would you jump too? (laughs) You know, I I don't go with groupthink. You know, I have my own opinions. But. Because of that, um, like I say, I, I, I feel like I have struggled uh, ever since to, you know, to find validation and, and to try to tone it. I mean, I enjoy a good rant as much as the next person. Some of my favorite YouTubers are people that that's all they do. They just rant and bitch about everything. But I don't want to be that guy, you know, no. not anymore. I, I enjoyed that a little bit at the beginning. And that was kind of the reputation that I that I earned. And I know that there's people out there that listen to us specifically because they're like, oh, I hope Gardner goes off on a good rant this episode, you know? And yeah. it's but it makes it hard then when you when you want to be serious, when you want to be like, you know, the, the other thing I get yeah. all the time is, oh, you, you hate everything. I can't tell you the number of episodes I've done about things that I love and I'll gush over it. And, and, you know, the, the whole episode is just a big fat love fest for this thing. Those episodes seem to be completely forgotten. It's the ones where we hated something. Those are the ones that people remember. So I don't know if it says so much about me or if it says something about other people, but I, I really have tried to be more positive as a, as a podcaster. Cause I, I, you know, it occurred to me a long time ago, I think when my first boy left home that, you know, my kids have grown up while I've done this, you know, so there's there's a huge side of me as a human being that they're going to learn about from the podcast that I'm leaving behind than they are from the actual person that lived with them, you know. And I don't want the person that that they're going to remember through the shows that I've done to be negative. You know, I don't want the, the I don't want them to, you know, listen to this years from now or, you know, 
their descendants or whatever, you know, I don't want the record that's left of me to be a a negative perception. You know, at the end of the day, I hope people can listen to it and go, Hey, he was kind of an idiot, but you know, he's a nice guy, you know, (laughs) that sort of thing, you know? Well, I think that's, that's shown. I think you said you're trying to tone, you know, because you'd always thought times you'd hear when you're on podcasts talk about poking the bear, and there were, you know, people wanted to try to. Yep. You. <laughs> yep. And uh, <laughs> and I, I can tell that you've kind of resisted trying to, you know, take the bait. So uh, I guess it is working because I've kind of noticed it. it well, it's I, you know, I'll say it's, it's one of the many reasons I, I don't podcast as much as I used to. To be to be completely honest about it. Um, it's, that's that's a question I get a lot that I don't typically answer. So you guys are lucky; you've got the exclusive on that. But it, that is one of the big reasons I that I did back way off from podcasting for for a while because there there was a serious there was a serious point. Uh, and I, I talked to Honeywell and a couple of the other guys about it. There was a serious point where I was like, I'm just done. I'm done with this. I, I can't take. Because see, Chris, Honeywell has this amazing thing where he just does not give a flying whatever what people think of him, what they say about him. It, it does. It just. It, it just. It's water off a duck's back to him. Me, it goes straight to my heart, man. Yeah. Every damn time, I just. I. I have very thin skin, and I can't handle it. You know, and it really bugs me, and it sticks with me when. You know, it's one thing if it's justified, you know, like if what's funny is there's so many times when I would be editing a show and I'd listen back and go, oh, man, I'm completely wrong about that. I sound like an idiot. You know, there was an there was one whole episode where I called a title by a completely different title. I never get called out on stuff like that. I get called out on something else, you know, that, that goes, like I say, goes straight to the heart and sticks with me, you know? And, and, and I always feel like half the time that, it, that it's not justified. So it's like, I, I don't get called out on the stuff where I'm perfectly justified being ripped to shreds. It's something else that actually hurts that I get called out on, you know? <laughs> I, I hear you. You know, it, um, we were very fortunate, you know, like a lot of the early reviews that we got, like Professor Allen was talking about, you know, we're willing to say that some of his work is better than others. And, and Gene Hendricks was saying how we will, if we see something we don't like or we find wrong with it, we'll say it. And, you know, the, the audience hasn't given us any guff when we've done that. We, we did one time, there was one guy on Facebook said a podcast where they're just taking shots at burn, count me out. And I guess it was the first time he'd listened to us, and it was the the Wonder Woman uh, episode. And we 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 definitely weren't um, uh, very favorable to that uh, to that issue. It was a, a, you know his first issue on Wonder Woman, and right. but it hasn't stopped us from you know from what we're doing. But then again, we haven't gotten you know we haven't had you know the rant type situation or the situation where we just outright didn't like something altogether we always find something good to point out in it and and so forth i don't know it's uh (laughs) the the and the thing is is that when you look at the the john byrne fandom world if you go out to his website burnrobotics.com most of the people that interact with him on his uh his forum are 
just gushing. They're always going to tell tell him what they think he wants to hear. You know, they're they're trying to elicit a response from him in a comment. And there's only one person I really think that calls him out on there, and it's a guy by the name of Nathan Greno, and he directed the movie Tangled, or was a co-director of the movie Tangled, and right. he's by far one of the most prolific uh, collectors of burn art, and he'll call him out for you know storytelling, uh, what, what he feels are storytelling mistakes, or you know like like plotting mistakes or what like that, and uh, it, it's funny because Burn doesn't you know take any umbrage at it. Uh, it's not like other people that you know might get on there and they'll take their chance to take a shot at him and call him a jerk or whatever. They get banned. But <laughs> you know the 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 average user that's on there are people that uh, or the people that comment on there the most are people that are just so complimentary that it gets a little old. Well, my approach right. to our show has always been: I wouldn't say anything that I wouldn't necessarily say to him. Mm-hmm. So I'm not. I, everything I say is with respect. I'm not. If I'm not going to say, "Oh, your stuff stinks and you can't draw," but if I say, <laughs> "Oh, this looks wonky," or "This doesn't make sense," or "I don't know why you did this," then I'm going to call it out because you know. Otherwise, why? You know, if it's just going to be us uh, saying, uh, praying at his feet, then you're not going to listen to the show, right? Yeah. And you, and you don't, you know, you don't grow as a creative person if all you hear from people is them kissing your behind, you know? Right. Yeah. You, you have yeah. to be called out occasionally, you know, on legitimate uh, faux pas or, or faults or that sort of thing in order to grow, you know, and that goes for any aspect of your life, you know, whether yeah. it's podcasting or, you know, basket weaving. If somebody's not calling you out to go hey you know this this could be better or you could do this differently or whatever you know then then you're just going to stagnate and you yeah know, that if, if your help. boss gives you a review and says hey you're doing great keep it up now did you you're, did uh, you take basket weaving in college <laughs> it was an elective where i was at <laughs> second I, semester I got really I tricky kind of, <laughs> i just kind of pulled that out of the ether to be honest with you <laughs> oh man this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I've got to you know, call it quit. So, uh, yeah. But I, I have enjoyed this immensely. I really have. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I did think of one question though. You you mentioned uh, talking to. Have you ever actually met John Byrne? Is a question I meant to ask you. Uh, yeah, actually, Tim met him twice within the last two years. Once in Boston and Dallas, and I got to meet him just last February, oh, a year ago, February here in Dallas. And yeah, how I, got my, I got I, my, I, he, for me, he was perfectly, uh, amiable. He was, he was, uh, I didn't really, I didn't feel like I could just co- co- talk up and have a conversation with him when he was, when he wasn't signing, but I did go up, my sh- I was wearing my sh- our shirt and I said, Hey, I do a podcast, you know, uh, f- you know, on your stuff. And he seemed kind of like, Oh, okay. And then later, <laughs> or then later I was wearing the shirt and I showed him, he goes, Oh, okay. He didn't seem that interested, but uh, I think went up later and I, uh, I said, "Can I get a picture with you?" He said, "Yeah." So I went up there next to him and I was standing right next to him and he kind of reaches over like he's going to kiss me, and I've got a picture. I of remember that. So he yes. was being. I remember the pictures. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. He was being very playful. He was. Uh, uh, he, I had no problem with him, and his panels are, are pretty nice. You know, he he's very honest about what he's talking about and what he wants to do. So. Yeah, I, uh, he, he's I actually tried listening to our show once too, and um, 
It was uh, the Christmas episode where we covered the World War One flying ace story. And he, and he did, said you didn't know, know anything about World War One, right? Well, he said whoever whoever was talking did not know anything about the about the flying ace or you know whatever the character it was, was. Probably all of us. And yeah, I mean, because that was that was we had four of us talking in that one because we had the interns on. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of confusion on the character because when I first read the story initially, I thought it was Baron von Richthofen, the the Red Baron. And it turned out not to be. It was a DC character. So uh, you know, yeah, I I was. Full mea culpa on the episode, yeah. But uh, you know, he just you know when he realized that we didn't really know the subject that well, he tuned out and and shut it off. Yeah, okay, that's how it goes. Hey, he listened. He listened once. That's that was that's enough for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I have. uh, I have not had the pleasure, but uh, I don't know. It's one of those things. For the longest time, you know, up and up until fairly recently, I was always like, yeah, I don't know that I'd, I'd want to actually meet him because having met some of my heroes that turned out to to be kind of jerks, you know, in all honesty, I, I didn't want Burn to be one of them. But something tells me, I I think I think I'd actually like the guy, you know, because I, I think for one thing, I think this this bad reputation that he has of being nasty to fans and and stuff at, you know, appearances and all. I think a lot of it's fabricated. I think a lot of it's overblown, but even if he is, I bet you that a lot of the fans have deserved it too. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, he signs, he doesn't charge. So I'm charging, you know, five bucks, two bucks, a dollar or six. He just, he'll just, you just get in line. He'll sign whatever you got. That's awesome. That's how it ought to be, in my opinion. But he's he's been limiting yeah. it, you know. Like when he does do it, he'll say, you know, he he'll only sign ten books, and that's yeah, still, still that's that's, that's, that's a lot. That's because, a lot. You know, it's like he got so beaten down going to conventions, and someone would come up with a long box and want him to sign everything. You know. Oh, and, those those people, those people. I, I you know. If, if you'll forgive me, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a plea to your listening audience. If you're ever at a convention and you get behind that guy or you see that guy that does that, that has the long box for one creator to sign and just kind of dumps it on them, doesn't half the time they don't bother to greet them, they don't bother to strike up a conversation, they don't have any social manners whatsoever. They just walk up and dump it and like here sign this. Do me a favor. Haul off and kick them square in the ass because that's what they need. That it's so incredibly rude when they do that. And uh, I tell you, I don't do my, many cons anymore. But when I go to cons now, I have absolutely zero tolerance for idiots like that anymore. If you stink, I'm going to call you out. If you're an idiot when it comes to greeting creators, I'm going to call you because these are the things that ruin cons for the rest of us, and they're mm-hmm. just too expensive. To shell out that kind of money to have some other fool ruin it because they just have no concept of how a, a, a society works. You know what I mean? Well, what's worse is because they're probably getting him signed because they're going to sell him. They're not right. there because they yep. love this creator exactly. and they want his autograph. And then the, the, so, along with that, there's always the ones that come up and they want someone to be taking a picture while he's getting a signature for authenticity. Right. He won't do He wouldn't yeah, allow that. He wouldn't, was yeah, there, he he wouldn't said, allow he that. He would not allow that. Yeah. So here I said I wouldn't rant, and I went and ranted. So I'm going to try to <laughs> no. I'm going to try to spin it a little more positively. The other thing that you can do, I, I've I've always done this, um, and I, I think it's a good practice. And I've actually been complimented by some creators for doing it. Per, have them personalize the signature. 
Um, and I, what I try to do is go a step further. If the creator seems like they're cool with it, cause some creators, honestly, they just don't want to be bothered, you know, uh, why they're even appearing sometimes. Some creators I've actually wondered like, why are you here? Cause you don't seem like you really want to socialize, but most creators, they really do want the, the interaction with their fans, you know? And so not only do I ask them to personalize the signature, um, but if if they seem like they're amenable to it, I try to tell them why I brought this to be signed in the first place. Um, because typically I like to take things that have a, a personal meaning for me, you know, a personal right. connection. Um, you know, like it, it's something I read as a kid or, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. And nine, I would say nine times out of ten, the creators, the, that seems to mean a lot to them. And I'm I'm definitely going to continue to do that because I was just reading something. God, I wish I could remember what creator it was. Um, I'm I'm completely blanking on who it was, but it was a writer. And I was just reading something where he said, um, he was at some convention, and somebody brought something up to him that he considers to be one of his like worst things he ever did. You know, it's just as far as like, it was a throwaway project. I was young. It wasn't really good. That sort of thing. You know, not something he was like embarrassed of, but just something that he looks at now. And he's like that, uh, that was just not my best stuff. And the person that brought it up to him had a story about how it had touched him and it meant a lot to him. And it really got him into this character and what have you. And the creator's point was, you, you never know how you've affected somebody, you know, right. that it's easy to, for these guys, you know, because most of them, you know, especially the older creators, they were work for hire. It was a job, you know, and it's for a lot of these guys, it's really rewarding to now meet us. And we're so enamored of their work oftentimes because this was our childhood, you know, that yeah. You know, especially if you were the stereotypical, and I definitely was, you know, the stereotypical nerdy kid, you know, you didn't get the girls, you weren't the best looking guy, you, you couldn't play sports to save your life. You were a nerd. So what was your, what was your thing? You know, you, you liked comic books. And so that's why a lot of us identify with, you know, certain characters or storylines or, or whatever the same way like the jocks identify with some great sports player or some great sports team it's the same fandom we're just yeah. you know it's a different yeah, thing it's different and it yeah. means so much to these guys to hear those stories you know because it, it it's validation for them that the work they were slogging over while their children were growing up affected somebody you know, that now is out there maybe literally changing the world. You don't know. You know, maybe they went on to be a policeman because of some great Batman story that you wrote or something. So my, my point is, I know I'm being very long-winded, but my point of all this is, is, you know, don't be afraid to talk to these guys. And don't be afraid to, you know, to let them know that, you know, you, I'm not asking you to sign this because I'm going to slap it up on eBay and make big money. I'm asking you to sign this because it affected my life and I'm probably going to frame it and put it up on my wall at home. You know, that means the world to these guys. And it's going to keep them coming back to more cons yeah. rather than just going, I am so tired of signing 
you know, dirt man number three for the 20 billionth <laughs> time. And I'm never doing another con again. You know, that's what keeps these guys coming back is those positive stories that the fans tell them. Yeah. And then and that's the sad thing is that, you know, the only reason why burn did the last two cons is because Shatner asked him to do it. And so he's, he says he's basically done. It, it'll be special occasion to probably show up for, but not that often. Yeah, he, I, think, I think he had a that's positive awesome. enough experience. He might do it. He might do it again. That's yeah. awesome that, uh, that, you know, Shatner, man. I mean, if Shatner asked me to run naked down the street, I would do it. Are you kidding me? So <laughs> it, was, awesome. it was cool, too, because uh, they, they had the, the, the bound volume of the Star Trek New Visions there. It was like an omnibus. And so you, you paid for a certain thing. You got that book, which was limited edition. And then Byrne would sign it, and Chris Ryle was there, and then they'd hand it right over to Shatner. So you got to talk to both of them uh, for that segment, and then he did the other signatures and a different thing. But it was really cool talking to the three of them at once, and Shatner kept trying to hire my son as his valet, (laughs) (laughs) which was cool. But Shatner Shatner and Byrne together, that was really a cool event. Had a lot of fun. It was. Yeah. Well, Tim... You know, I think we've we've beaten everything we can <laughs> to do. I think we've taken up enough of Scott's time. Yeah, thanks, but, Scott, uh, and hey. your time. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I can't thank you enough, Scott. So we don't do this enough, so it's good to get you back on, and we'll have to get you on another show when you know we cover something a little more substantial to your taste. Some- that you really want to talk about. Well, if we can get this much this much chatter out of uh, Willie <laughs> and the Chopper Bunch, then I'm, I'm excited to come back anytime you want me. So. Excellent. Tim, you want to take us out? Uh, yeah, I'll take us out. All right. Uh, for Third Degree Burn, this ends a an epic long conversation with uh, this has been kind of like the Actors Studio. Uh, the Actors Studio, where this has been a comic talk with Scott Gardner. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, I am Tim Elliott, and for Third Degree Burn, I'm Brian Hughes. Say goodnight, Scott. Good night, Scott. Ever wish you didn't have radiator problems? Ever wish you didn't have a radiator? Ever wish you could sail through mud or snow? Ever wish your car didn't guzzle so much gas? The Volkswagen has no radiator problems. In fact, no radiator. The Volkswagen engine is cooled by air. Can't freeze in winter or boil over in summer. The Volkswagen engine's in the rear. You go in mud or snow. The Volkswagen cuts most gas bills in half. Ever wish you owned a Volkswagen? Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. 
Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.